I'm Dr. Future, your host. I invite you to join me as together we experience a future quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I'm Tom B.A. Baracus Bionic. Oh, boy. Back to the A-team again dun, here. Dun, 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 dun. Well, I hope our listeners think about it this week. It's mm-hmm. the beginning of another week, and we have another great guest. We have an old-timer coming back with us. And the reason he's one of the few people who comes back regularly is because he has something new and fresh to deliver every time. Yeah. And His, his normal work week, work week must be like 80 hours a week. I think so. Most of it in the editing booth. And that's because we're talking about Chris Pinto, the producer of a new documentary called The Hidden Faith of the Founding Fathers. We're going to talk about exposing the idolatrous myth of the faith of the Founding Fathers. And we need to go to that, and then we'll be back to wrap it up here at Future Quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I'm Tom Biblical Calculus Bionic. Biblical Calculus? Yeah, it's like, you know, high level of thinking of... About the Bible. Is that, have you copyrighted that term? No. Tom? It's just something that came up off the top of my head. It's two of my just favorite things. About this subject. Bible and calculus. Yeah. Okay. Well, we have a third party joining us this week. Uh, our guest this week is the one, the only Chris Pinto, the producer of a new documentary out called The Hidden Faith of the Founding Fathers. And we're talking this week about exposing the idolatrous myth of the faith of the Founding Fathers. And I want to welcome you, Christian J. Pinto, Patriarch of Adullam Films, for your seventh visit to the Future Quake Show. And I am sure this will be proved to be yet another memorable visit. Oh, well, thank you, uh, Dr. Future. It's great to be here as always. Uh, good, to, good to be with you and Tom Bionic. Mm-hmm. You guys are awesome. And uh, I can't tell you, you know, I, I still get emails from people who tell me that they heard me on Future Quake. And uh, it... Uh, it's always exciting. We're media uh, giants. What can you say? Yeah. <laughs> do, do, do they do they email you for your patience and restraint with us? Yeah. Like yeah. how you Something bite your like tongue that. and don't tell those guys off. Up with those two lunatics. Yeah. Learned a lot. Yeah, yeah. You set the example of extreme patience with those gentlemen. Yeah. Well, that that's great. I, I don't know if you knew that you were part of the Seven Club now, which is very rarefied air. Rare air around here. You you know, there's only even a handful of guests that even make a second visit to Future Quake. Uh, we usually keep fresh blood going in here, and the reason why we keep having you back is because you have stuff that's cataclysmic and has a direct impact on our line of thinking. Uh, as as oh, those praise sh- the Lord, wonderful. Well, as those shows which are are preserved in our archives of futurequake.com will attest, uh, you have discussed many of your earlier earth-shaking documentaries with us, including uh, those from the America's Mystery series, such uh, as Riddles and Stone, and Eye of the Phoenix, uh, as well as some of your other works, such as the kidney, uh, Kinsey Syndrome. The Kidney Syndrome. Not the Kidney, that's a <laughs> different work. The Kinsey Syndrome, A Lamp in the Dark, and others. Uh, in your last visit with us in March, you discussed your latest research and findings on the little-known theological positions of the Founding Fathers, uh, which you also presented at that time at the 2010 uh, last day's conference uh, in April here in Nashville, and it caused quite quite a stir on our show. We got a lot of feedback from that show that you did with us, and, and others who have been exposed to your information. Uh, it's it's word has gotten around on that, 
And I take it that the feedback you got was so provocative that it led you to produce a separate documentary, which has now just been released as The Hidden Faith of the Founding Fathers, with the information that you've uncovered, as well as some, some additional late-breaking commentary on current events. Uh, what is it about this topic and information that really made you desire to reprioritize your projects? I know you have a number of them underway. And devote the time you have to produce a full-blown three-hour documentary on this project and this topic. Well, you know, I was really impacted when, because uh, this all began when I wrote the chapter for the book that uh, Tom Horn uh, uh, produced called uh, How to Overcome the, the Most Frightening Issues That You'll Face This Century and so on. And I wrote one of the chapters on the church and secret societies, but I really talked about the faith of America's founders. And, uh, uh, you know, Tom was, uh, he was impacted by the, the chapter and chose to use it as the intro for his book, Apollyon Rising 2012. And that's when I, you know, I kind of realized then, because I took a lot of this information for granted, because I had learned it over the years of researching Secret Mysteries, you know, the Secret Mysteries series. And uh, so I was able to put it together pretty quickly, but I knew the quotes. And I guess I, I had partly assumed that a lot of other people were familiar with these quotes as well. But once that chapter got out there, I realized quickly that, uh, many, many Christians are not aware, even though they, they might think that the founders were not necessarily Christians, they don't realize how vehemently anti-Christian these men were, and that in some cases, some of them wanted to get rid of the gospel entirely, um, and that they were very hostile to Christianity. And it's, it's, it's quite often, you know, you read their letters and their information and so on, it's the exact opposite of what we're being told in churches and so on. And so initially that had an impact. And then as you mentioned, the uh, the prophecy conference here in Nashville in 2010 this year, uh, when I gave my presentation there on the Founding Fathers, I could see just from the impact on the audience, uh, so many people, so many believers who were just stunned uh, and disturbed over you know, so many of the quotes from men like Jefferson and Adams and uh, and others of the founding era, Thomas Paine and so on, uh, and just how against the Bible they were, how against the Lord Jesus Christ they were. And uh, uh, it, it, I just felt led of the Lord uh, uh, to put this information together in a, in a documentary type format so that people would have it. They'd have the, you know, the, the data there. I don't know of anything else out in the market, whether as as a book or or as a, a DVD or a documentary or anything that covers this information in this kind of detail. And so, uh, so that's been you know what's what spurred me forward to get this done. Hmm. Well, you, you know, a good bit of the early material in your documentary, uh, which I just recently had a chance to to, to witness a hot off the press copy of this work. Yeah, a lot of it was discussed to some extent during your earlier visit in March on our show. And I would suggest that our listeners uh, listen within our, our show archives to that show at futurequake.com if they've not done so already. Uh, and we're going to focus most of our time and just only address a few refresher points from that content. Of course, you, you give a lot more depth in the documentary. People need to get it to see your references and your citations. They can see with their own eyes about what you've talked about. Uh, but we're just going to cover a few points on that. 
Uh, to begin our discussion of the philosophy of theology of the Founding Fathers, uh, as attested to by their writings, as you cite, how did they compare the value of human reason compared to revelation from Scripture or supernatural reports? And how did that influence their interpretation of the Bible and the Gospels? Well, it's it's probably the single most important aspect to understand uh, is their idea of human reason and philosophy and what they believed in general. And if you read the writings of Thomas Paine, Thomas Jefferson, and John Adams, those three in particular, uh, they wrote about this extensively. But they believe that, you know, as we read in Genesis, man, get, man was given the knowledge of good and evil from the beginning, and that man has a responsibility to exercise that knowledge, okay, through the powers of reason, human reason, using his own natural wisdom, and from that to develop a philosophy. And that philosophy is to govern his understanding of good and evil in the world. And uh, in uh, France, during this revolutionary era, reason was, and this goes back centuries and centuries, you find the reformers writing about it in the ancient world. Uh, but during the revolutionary era, what they would do is they would take the goddess of reason, they would dress up a woman, you know, as the goddess of reason or have a statue, and they would carry it on a, a litter, and this was their god. And it symbolized reason. And what they meant by it was it was uh, reason for that which they could understand in the natural realm mm -hmm. in rejection of things that were supernatural. So, for example, if you had a, uh, uh, you know, the, the story of the virgin birth of Christ, uh, they would look at, you know, that story in the Bible, and they would say, okay, well, we've got a story of a virgin, and an angel shows up and tells her she's going to get pregnant, and then she does, even though she's still a virgin. Uh, you know, what does nature tell us? According to the laws of nature, this kind of thing just doesn't happen. We've never seen angels, and we know that all of the, uh, you know, the, the virgin girls that we know, they don't get pregnant unless they're joined to a man. And so it's contrary to reason. It's just unreasonable to believe that a virgin would get pregnant and bear a child. And so then they would then reject the idea of the virgin birth of Christ. They would say, well, this is just a fable. It's a fairy tale that somebody has invented out of nothing, and we're not going to believe it. And they, they would do the same thing with the, the miracles of Christ throughout the New Testament, even the miracles in the Old Testament, certainly, uh, they questioned them uh, extensively, believe, you know, would make fun of them. Voltaire was known for this over in France in his writings. You know, he relied upon a lot of wit and humor, uh, making fun of the Bible, Old Testament and New. Um, and they collectively, from that, uh, wanted really to see reason, human reason, really overthrow Christianity and just, you know, get rid of Christianity once and for all. Now, this and was so, a main theme of the Enlightenment, this area, period, wasn't it? Right. This, this was elevation the, the of human... So they were grown up in that environment where, where basically it was the elevation of human reason in general, and they're a product of that environment, the thinking of that time, amongst, amongst the educated elite. Right. You, you had men like, you know, Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson spent years over in uh, France... Um, 
you know, uh, during the whole revolutionary era, Adams was there briefly, um, but uh, Franklin and Jefferson were especially there. But you find even in the writings of George Washington, and certainly Thomas Paine, who wrote the book The Age of Reason, uh, you know, Paine really wrote in a big way. He would, like, lay out in great detail uh, what the, th- the thoughts and the philosophies of, uh, of this uh, belief system were. But then when you go and you read other founders like George Washington and Ben Franklin, who were more subdued, they didn't write so openly about it, but you can see all of the elements there in their own references to human reason and when they would talk about the Bible and so on. Uh, they were more careful. They were more cautious you know, they didn't want to come right out and denounce it, but you can tell that they generally believe the same thing uh, in terms of, you know, saying that that natural wisdom is to be preferred above the idea of these supernatural occurrences that are being recorded in the Bible. Okay, so that, in other words, they, they, they believed man was at an elevated enough state that he could be the sole arbiter of what was true or not true, and that man, particularly if he was educated, had a sufficiently elevated state that he could actually make a discernment based upon what he knew of science, his past history and experience, to, to decide something that passed muster as truth or not, and certainly not external revelation from others. And that probably right. is what they saw was a handicap of society for millennia before, is that they had just been handed on what, what truth was from some external source, be it the Bible or the church or some other group, whereas now they had had an, a lofty state. We had printing press. We had, you know, schools of education and other things where information could pass. It could dispel myths and other kind of things. Where now man was at a point where they could really determine better than these old dusty books what truth was. Absolutely. In fact, there's a quote from John Adams that that just encapsulates it, where he says. He says, when philosophic reason is clear and certain, he says, no amount of of revelation that comes by way of prophecy or miracles can supersede it. So in other words, if you can figure something out in your head, you know, and it makes sense to you, like the back to the virgin birth thing, if, if you determine that a virgin doesn't get pregnant, then no amount of revelation that comes by way of a, a prophecy about a virgin bearing a child, you know, or a miracle where an angel shows up and says you're going to bear a child and his name will be called Jesus and so on. Um, none of that can override what the powers of human reasoning have told you. Mm-hmm. So he's so they. I'm, this is not just my impression of what they said. They were very forward sure. in in saying. You know, we reject this idea of divinely inspired scripture, uh, and because they understood that the ancient world was governed based upon that belief, uh, all of Europe was governed, whether whether Catholic or Protestant Europe uh, was governed based upon uh, believing that Jesus is the divine Son of God. You know, he was born of a virgin; he came into the world and that he is the Son of God and the King of Kings. That's how uh, it's based upon that uh, claim of authority that the popes governed, you know, 
uh, and reigned over the Catholic monarchs of Europe, uh, but also in England. Uh, England was uh, openly declared as a Christian nation and uh, uh, claimed, however imperfectly they may have done it, um, uh, claimed that they were you know, uh, governing themselves according to the commandments of God as set forth in the Bible. That that's what the that's why Adams at one point says he says the great question before mankind is whether uh authority is originally in the people or whether it comes down from heaven as the Holy Ghost in the form of a dove. He says, you know, which authority is mankind going to obey? The will of the people or, you know, divinely inspired authority supposedly that comes from heaven and has given us these commandments that we find in the Bible. Mm-hmm. It's very that's very, what, yeah. it's very interesting that's, how you phrase that choice. Yeah. But that's what they believed. And and they believed that you know, and so when they're writing in like the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution about the God of nature and nature's God what they really mean by that is the understanding of God that can be perceived by the natural man. Mm-hmm. So now, it, if I understand this right then, when they would look at, back to my original question about how they perceived the scriptures and things like this, um, they would appreciate the part of scriptures and highly regard that which was an external revelation that really just reinforced things that they thought they already knew. Uh, moral things like be kind to your neighbor, don't mm-hmm. kill people, these th- things that they already knew. If, if this revelation confirmed that already, then, then they could tolerate it. If it went aside from something they already knew, well then it must be an untruth. Right. They, they assumed that it was a, you know, a fable or a fairy tale. They, they equated many of the stories of the Bible with you know, the, the ancient legends of Minerva and mm-hmm. Hercules and Zeus and this kind of thing. They, they believe that just as there were these uh, fables about the gods coming down and interacting with men and so on, they believe that the, the stories of Jesus uh, and, you know, even stories in the Old Testament and so on, where supernatural things are happening, they believe that these were things that were just added in by the cult Christians Okay, who wanted mm-hmm. to take this ordinary man, Jesus, and turn him into a god. Uh, that's what they believed, uh, generally. They, they did not believe that Jesus was God manifest in the flesh. Right. Uh, they, they believed that that was just a fable, a fairy tale, uh, but that he was just an ordinary man uh, who was very intelligent and was, uh, he had, you know, a beautiful, beautiful ideas of morality. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they did not believe that he was divine or that he died on the cross for our sins or any of that. They believed that all of that was uh, just rubbish. You know, it's interesting. You know, it's interesting, Chris. It just got me to thinking about uh, there, there's sort of a current movement afoot, a freedom movement amongst young people around the world, uh, you know, very much a sort of a, a liberty movement you see on YouTube and on the Internet and things and mm-hmm. works like Zeitgeist and things like this. And along with that, they make those same arguments that you're saying the Founding Fathers and the Enlightenment thinkers made, mm-hmm. that the teachings of the Bible were really stolen. They often say it came from the, the myths of of Isis and Osiris and Horus being resurrected and Mithras 
and that these things were taught in the ancient world before they were co-opted over to Christianity about a dying and rising God. And in their same documentaries, you will see this push for a rise of the people in freedom and liberty alongside this whole thing questioning this. And it's almost an identical template. Yeah, I I I, I want to say one thing about like zeitgeist and and because I've seen zeitgeist and watched these arguments that this guy makes, which are provably false arguments. You know, equating and you can go on the the internet and you'll see like an image of Horus, right, the, the ancient mm-hmm. god Horus on a cross being crucified and this kind of thing, or Dionysus on a cross being crucified, which none of which has anything to do with the mythologies of the ancient world. All of these are like modern Mm -hmm. paintings and carvings and so on that were done in Photoshop by people. Uh, They're, they're not at all, you know, like if you, if you read the Egyptian book of the dead and, and so on, none of that is recorded about the God Horus or any of these gods. Mm -hmm. Um, and if, if, if that had been true, you would have had the enemies of Christianity, the Roman, right. the Greek, pagan enemies, would have been jumping up and down and lifting up a shout about that for hundreds of years. Uh, but they never do. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a very modern kind of argument. Mm-hmm. Um, even the founders, who were much more schooled in the pagan mysteries, even though they believed, they equated the stories of Christ with the you know, the, the mysteries and whatnot, they never said, oh, Jesus was crucified just like Horus, or you right. know, mm-hmm. he was born of a virgin just like Horus or something. They never said anything like that uh, uh, because that information is provably false. Right, it's but just, what they did do was they put Christianity into the realm of other pagan mysteries. Yes. And that's, that's the thing I'm finding is an interesting marriage of these thoughts of individual freedom, you know, alongside that. Um, get, getting to some specifics about your documentary, we talked a little bit when you were here back in April about a few people like Thomas Paine, but could you refresh us a little bit and tell us just very concisely what he generally believes about Christianity and uh, Christians in general? I know you make it very clear that, that Washington and the other founding fathers considered him and his teaching, common sense, his pamphlet, to be key to the American Revolution and really an embodiment of the American Revolution. He's not just a peripheral character. He was sort of the heart and soul of of the activity. So it's very important to be able to look at what he actually believed about this. So with that in context, what were some of his thoughts that he had in writing uh, about this? Pain, it says on his tombstone, without the pen of pain, the sword of Washington would have been wielded in vain. I mean, you know, this kind of thing is said about him and his writings. What's interesting is that the American colonists were involved in a series of skirmishes against England. Uh, and then when Payne came along and he wrote uh, Common Sense, initially they were just fighting for their rights, you know, like, like with these tea partiers out there waving signs and saying, hey, we want our rights as citizens. Uh, but then when Payne came along, Payne's common sense said, look, we don't need to be involved in skirmishes. We need a declaration of independence. We need to break away from England entirely. We need to have a revolution and a war for independence. That's, that's what Payne's contribution was in short. But, um, but his view of Christianity, uh, I, I mean, he called Christianity an amphibious fraud that needed to be 
destroyed, literally. Um, uh, he exalted the ideas of human reason to the point where he said things like, you know, because I don't believe in the creed of any church that I know of. My own mind is my own church. I mean, reason is really the worship of the human intellect. Um, uh, he said that the Bible would be better called the word of a demon rather than the word of God. Uh, he, he went Which that is, that's far. not, yeah, that's not something nice to say about the Bible. No, no, not at all. He was so uh, rabidly anti-Christian that on his deathbed, he, in the final months before he died, it was given out that he was afraid, he was fearful of being alone. And he had people that came to see him all the time because he was incredibly famous. I mean, Common Sense sold half a million copies uh, when it was published, and everybody read it. Um, and, and at the time, I'm trying to remember what the total population of the colonies were, but the colonies were like three or four million people. You know, so half a million copies. I mean, this thing went everywhere. Everybody read Common Sense. And uh, then during the Revolution, when things were, when the chips were down, Payne was writing his crisis series and, you know, fueling the revolutionaries to keep fighting and so on. That's why they gave him so much credit. But uh, then after the Revolution, that's when he revealed with his book, The Age of Reason, his hatred, really, for Christianity. And so before he died, people were coming to see him left and right every day and warning him that he needed to repent or he was going to die and go to hell. And uh, and he would just turn them all away and so on. But uh, uh, when he was on his deathbed, the reason he was fearful of being alone is he was afraid that some Christian would come to visit him and spend a few minutes and talk to him and then go out and tell everybody that he had repented and now, you know, confess Christ as Savior and as a believer. And he wanted to make sure that couldn't happen. So he had his close friends with him at all times uh, as eyewitnesses because he wanted it recorded that he rejected Christianity with his dying breath and that he... He in no way was going to make some, like the thief on the cross, you know, and make a final confession right before he dies. And he wanted to make sure that people knew that he did not recant, that he did not repent, but that he continued to reject Christianity, you know, as he left this world. All right, we're back at Future Quake with Dr. Future. And Tom, not a big fan of Nicholas Bonneville? Bionic. <laughs> Good reference. Yeah. Good reference there. Uh, I'm glad that he took this effort to take some of this teaching from his provocative book chapter and, mm-hmm. and our show, which got us a lot of attention on the show, into a formal documentary. He's got all sorts of new information. Mm-hmm. We'll cover some more the rest of this week, mm-hmm. but it's something that our listeners really need to get a hold of. Yeah. And uh, we've heard a little bit about Thomas Paine. We've got more to discuss about him, about uh, his connections with the Illuminati and things like that tomorrow. But speaking of Illuminati, Merv, would you come <laughs> in and tell our listeners how to contact us at FutureQuake? FutureQuake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. 
Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay, we got to go. Out of here. Come back tomorrow for the next segment with uh, producer Chris Pinto. Until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Bye. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I'm Tom. Let's mock Voltaire, Bionic. <laughs> That's fine. Hey, we uh, are this week with Chris Pinto, the producer of a new documentary called The Hidden Faith of the Founding Fathers. And our theme this week is exposing the idolatrous myth of the faith of the Founding Fathers. And we need to go right to it. Let's go. So here's our second segment with uh, documentary producer Chris Pinto. And we'll be back to wrap it up here at Future Quake. So he was that you know, vehemently opposed to the gospel. And it's just all over his, and we get a lot of quotes in the film, and, and you know, because he says things like, it is the fable of Jesus Christ against which I contend. And he says that the story, taking it as it is told, is is uh, perverse, right? And he, he talks about the virgin birth. They all seem to talk about the virgin birth, and that how it's saying that God had come and committed debauchery with a woman engaged to be married, uh, and so on. So they were they were not just against it, but Paine, and then, of course, Jefferson and Adams later on, very vulgar, very hard words, hard speeches uh, against the writings of the New Testament and the Bible overall. In mm-hmm. fact, before he died, uh, Paine wrote a whole book, and it was like, you know, those books from that era they, where they'd have these big, long titles quite often, and he wrote a book called uh, On the Prophecies of the Old Testament Concerning the Person of Jesus Christ and Proving that There Are No Such Prophecies of Any Such Person. Okay, so he, he goes over all the prophecies that foretell that a Messiah will come into the world and that Jesus is the fulfillment of those prophecies, and he just denounces all of them and says that, no, there are, there are really no such prophecies at all. Huh. Uh, and it's all just a big lie. Well, uh, so s- speaking further about Paine, what were his connections to the Illuminati? There was some other information that hmm. I saw you had in your documentary about that, some connections. And what were their documented plans for America? Yeah, the, the very clear connection with the Illuminati is, and this is after the Revolution now, Paine was in France um, helping out with the French Revolution. But at one point, he becomes uh, the roommate and longtime, for the rest of his life, friend of a guy named Nicholas Bonneville. Oh, and yeah. it, Nicholas Bonneville. And Bonneville was a member of the Bavarian Illuminati. And if you read the book... Fire in the Minds of Men by Dr. James Billington. Uh, Billington writes about this era, and he says that when you know Adam Weishaupt, of course, founded the Illuminati, but he said that uh, that Nicholas Bonneville was Weishaupt's decisive channel of Illuminist influence. Okay, and then he talks about the things that Bonneville was doing and so on. But then Bonneville becomes roommates with Thomas Paine. And according to Billington, 
uh, Bonneville, you know, had his wife, and he and his wife and Nicholas Bonneville and Thomas Paine were all involved in, in a menage a trois, apparently, uh, in their relationship. And it's interesting that if you read Thomas Paine's will, uh, in his last will and testament, he sp- goes out of his way to mention Nicholas Bonneville and his wife. And it's very clear that they were very long-time friends of his, uh, and so on. But that's the most direct connection to the Illuminati. Mm-hmm. Now, how would you explain uh, in a nutshell what the Illuminati's professed plans for, for America? What, what role did they see of America in their plans in, in a succinct way? I think the, the, uh, as succinct as I could be, they were originally called the Society of the Perfectibilists. And they saw their mission to perfect the world, you know, to perfect the social order and the political order. And so they would have seen America as an opportunity to do something in the new world that many people believed was impossible to accomplish in Europe because Europe had so many ancient enmities and, and wars and conflicts and so much politics was, you know, deeply embedded there. They, you know, they believe, well, we're just never really going to be able to get this done. So they would have forged ahead into the new world because there was still a lot of undeveloped territory. You had these uh, separate colonies that were newly unified. So there was a lot of, you know, newness and instability that the right people could come in and take advantage of if they knew what to do. And so I, I believe that that's how the Illuminati saw uh, uh, America, and I believe that's why they came over here and began to work in our political system. Mm-hmm. And it, it was it was virgin territory, so to speak, uh, right. apart from the influence of both royalty and the church. Right, exactly. For a, a and thir- you didn't have you didn't have all of the establishment that you had in Europe. Mm-hmm. You, know, you had. You know, like at that point, you know, France went back a thousand years at least, and, and England and so on. They had these long histories. They were, you know, deep uh, abiding traditions and so on. And the, the kings of Europe were generally very powerful. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they, they could not be, even though they overthrew King Louis, it was, uh, I mean, with the French Revolution, it was not easily done. It took years to bring that about. And then in the aftermath, to try and repair all of the damage that they caused in France was, uh, I mean, it was it was a colossal effort that they had to undergo. So it wasn't wasn't anything easy. Mm-hmm. Um, well, moving on to America. Go ahead. I, w- I was just going to move on to Thomas Jefferson. I, I uh, we've got a lot of material He's a to cover here. Uh, yeah, well, hang on there, brother Tom. <laughs> not that in sarcasm. Not so fast. Um, how, how did Thomas Jefferson consider the supernatural elements of the Bible as reflected in his writings on them and, and, and even his publication of the Jefferson Bible? This is another topic we talked about somewhat in your, your last visit, but can you give us a, just a little quick summary of how he regarded them as evidenced by this? Well, the Jefferson Bible is called, uh, it's kind of the, the quintessential picture of what most of the founders and the revolutionaries believed about Jesus Christ. And that is that the Jefferson Bible was originally called the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth. And the, the title really is kind of communicating what Jefferson thought. And that is that Jesus 
of Nazareth was an ordinary man who had an excellent system of morality, and he led an exemplary life. Uh, but Jefferson, in his Bible, he takes out all of those supernatural elements, you know, the virgin birth, the miracles of Christ, the resurrection, uh, the entire book of Revelation. Jefferson said the book of Revelation was the ravings of a maniac, uh, and so on, things like that. That's a direct quote from him. Um, and he would say, you know, people will, will quote Jefferson, and they'll, you know, and he'll say some nice things about Jesus, and then they clip the quote, and they don't tell you everything else he said. Uh, for example, he would say, oh, I find in his teachings, you know, the very uh, fine morality and so on. And then he would say, and then others of his teachings are full of so much imposture and falsehood and so on. And then he would, he would mock many of the teachings of Christ. Uh, he said that the, the apostles were full of stupidity and roguery uh, and that they were imposters. You know, that they weren't mm-hmm. real disciples of, of the true Jesus. And, of course, by that he meant that the true Jesus was not really God or the Son of God, that he was just an ordinary man, and, uh, and he just wanted to reform the religious views of his time. Did, did, did he comment anything about the resurrection of Christ or what he thought about that or atonement or any of those topics? Well, he would talk about... Uh, uh, talk about the idea of repentance and faith being the criteria for forgiveness. And he, there's a quote that we present in the film, and, and he says that, you know, Jefferson says that he rejects that because he requires, you know, good works, that a person has to have good works in order to be truly redeemed uh, of their, you know, whatever their sins are, their wrongdoings. And that's another recurring theme among the Founding Fathers, the founders, you know, Ben Franklin, most likely George Washington, whose motto was deeds, not words, uh, and so on, uh, and Jefferson, certainly, and Thomas Paine, they all believed in a generally a system of works righteousness, where it was your morality and your good deeds that this was the only thing that could really justify you in the sight of heaven. And uh, that the idea that you were just going to repent of your sin and believe in Jesus and that meant you were forgiven and now you can go to heaven they just they thought that was a ridiculous mm-hmm. idea just well, that would require sense. a supernatural work mm-hmm. uh, right. of atonement by another agent that would be doing that work supernaturally on you and that would go completely counter to their belief of self-earned righteousness right which is why i think the apostle paul says and we give a lot of scriptures in the film but, uh, you know, Paul says that the preaching of the cross is foolishness to them that are perishing. And I think that, you know, the, that uh, scripture is fulfilled, I think, clearly in the writings and, and the beliefs of the founding fathers. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of another one, John Adams, uh, you, you told us a little bit about him in your last visit, but I, I seem to recollect some, some new pieces in your documentary. And just one example is about his regard for Voltaire. How did John Adams regard Voltaire in comparison to Christianity, and what did Voltaire believe? Well, Voltaire is famous for being, you know, for his wit and his sarcasm and for mocking Christianity. And he had said famously that, uh, he said, you know, it took 12 ignorant fishermen to establish Christianity, and he says, I will show the world 
how one intelligent Frenchman will destroy it. That's where that's Voltaire. Um, and Voltaire, you know, was known for, for mocking the, the religious order and mocking the writings of the Bible and so on. Well, there's a, a quote that is often given from John Adams, where John Adams talks about how America and the revolution was founded on Christian principles. But then the rest of that quote, Adams says, yes, America was founded on the general principles of Christianity. But then he goes on to say uh, it was also founded on the principles of Cicero and uh, Aristotle and Plato and so on and on and on. And then he says, and Voltaire and Rousseau. Well, if you Mm. study Voltaire and Rousseau, I mean, Voltaire and Rousseau both hated Christianity. They both believed Christianity should be abolished. Uh, Rousseau wanted Christianity replaced with like a a state religion of some kind that that just really served the state. Uh, And and Voltaire, you know, wanted to get rid of Christianity entirely. And so you, it's like he's saying that America was founded on the principles of God and the devil at the same time. And people don't realize that a lot of Adams' quotes, when when John Adams is talking about Christianity and he mentions it favorably, He's not talking about the Christianity of the Bible, mm-hmm. not at all. He, he, John Adams had in his imagination a completely different understanding of what Christianity was. And he knew that, that his views were completely unorthodox. Uh, that's why there's a famous quote from him where he says he's talking to, you know, uh, Calvinists and uh, he, he mentions Athanasians. Athanasians are those. The Athanasian Creed was the, the the belief in the Trinity, the confession of that there's God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's the Athanasian Creed. And so he says, Oh, weep and howl, ye Calvinists, ye Athanasians, ye will say, I am no Christian. But I say, you are no Christians. Right? He turns it around. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Why? It's because Adams rejected biblical Christianity. He rejected the the Christian Trinity. Uh, He rejected the idea of Jesus as the Son of God. Uh, There's even a quote in there where he says that, and we show it the whole thing in the film, uh, he he says that the idea that Jesus is God manifest in the flesh is an awful blasphemy that needs to be Mm. got rid of. Now, now, what what I gather is that they sort of looked at Jesus like you'll hear some people today mention Gandhi as a gentleman that had some really good social principles of society, you know, for people to get along and things like this. And they brought Jesus evidently down to the level of these other people like Voltaire and Cicero, where he was just another philosopher on on society and morality. Uh, and it sure seems like to me there's a lot of handprints of the kind of thinking you would have had in a Masonic Lodge at that time, where all of this teaching was all considered part of wisdom that you amalgamated together. You didn't lift up any of them above the others, but they were part of sort of a collective wisdom. Is there a little bit of that kind of mindset you can see through their writings and thinking? Oh, that's entirely their mindset. Entirely. In fact, if you if you just keep if you keep reading their letters long enough, what I got out of them is that they believe that mankind in general was evolving 
in its understanding of right and wrong, and that you had these different teachers, whether it's Buddha or Zoroaster or Krishna or whoever, who would come along and they would have some good teachings, you know, good wisdom teachings, and that they were just sort of, things were progressing with mankind. And they believed that Jesus, through his moral teachings, was kind of the pinnacle, that he had basically taken all of the moral teachings of the previous, you know, way showers or masters or whatever, and uh, and that he had really, you know, established, as Benjamin Franklin said, just the finest system of morality that the world has ever seen or is likely to see. So you'll get quotes from the founders where they'll say that. Hmm. Uh, so they would commend the morality of Christ as being the greatest morality of all. Uh, but some of those quotes taken out of the full context of what those guys really believed can be easily misunderstood. Sure. You know, the, the Pharisees would have commended a lot of the same moral issues, you know, that Jesus mm-hmm. stood for. Uh, the one thing they were lacking, of course, was mercy and compassion. Uh, and, uh. Well, and I've heard myself many a new ager praise Jesus. Mm-hmm. At least the Jesus they want to believe in and embrace. The part yeah. of him that they're willing to amalgamate into their system. And so, yeah, it seems like there's more of the same here going on. Um, something else you brought in that I found very interesting, talking about far-flung, uh, prophets and wisdom, was about John Adams. And can you give us a hint on how John Adams' beliefs were tied to the Far East? What kind of evidence did you uncover about that? Yeah, there's a whole discourse between Adams. Adams is writing to Jefferson. And even though he'll say things like, you know, the Bible is the greatest book that was ever written or whatever, he he has quotes like that. Uh, Then he turns around and then he, he talks about this ancient Indian writing called the Shasta. And it's, uh, it's the first book in Brahmin theology, in, uh, in ancient Indian you know, beliefs and so on. And he, he does this big, long quote from the Shasta about how the Eternal One, meaning God, uh, is unknowable. You can't know who he is. So search not the essence of the Eternal, who is one, and so on, and he goes on in this big, long quote. And then Adams quotes from the Shasta about how God is an essence that is unknowable. And then he says, oh, these doctrines are sublime, if ever there were any sublime, and so on. And he goes on. And he's just praising this ancient Indian writing. And it becomes clear in his writings that that was really where Adams got his impression of God. Because he says elsewhere... God is an essence that we know nothing of. And that we can't really know who God is. That's what Adams wrote. That's what Jefferson wrote as well. Jefferson agreed with him. And so Adams says you can't really know who God is. So for Adams, the idea that Jesus was God manifest in the flesh, you know, that God has been mm-hmm. revealed now in the person of Jesus Christ, that was blasphemy, Right, he says. And I guess they okay. think that would lower God down to make himself knowable to us. Right. You know, it's right. interesting. I, I, I've i never heard of anybody put out this Far East connection that you're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe in academia they have, but in, in, in 
popular history discussions. I, I've not seen this connection. It makes you don't these, you don't see this coming up on the History Channel very much. Uh, no, and and I, and I find that these guys were much more modern than what we give them, you know, credence to, to think. And uh, it seems like uh, the, because of this idea, the immutability of of God or his unknowableness is is what would lead them very clearly into this deist belief. In that he started up the watch and built a big barrier, which all we can do is just measure some kind of evidence in his nature, uh, some handprints of where he left the crime scene, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, we can't really get to know the culprit, you know, who started it all to begin with. Um, Washington is one of the other main figures that you've talked about. And I, I, I really want people to know what you have found out and read about. For example, how Washington responded to the Lord's Supper when he was offered it in church. And how did Washington see himself in his connection to Christianity? Well, Washington is, uh, you know, what, what, just to answer your, uh, your question about the Lord's Supper communion, Washington was famous for getting up and walking out of the church before communion service would commence. And uh, this this became a national issue among Christians in the country at the time. And you, you find all of these letters. If you get the book by John Remsburg, Six Historic Americans, uh, when he talks about George Washington, he just presents pages and pages of quotes from different people who were writing back and forth to Washington's pastors trying to figure out why or what was going on and, you know, uh, can you? T- did you ever see him take communion, and and so on? Uh, because Washington refused to partake in, of communion, and uh, his wife Martha Washington, she was a regular partaker of it. But when he would go to church, and then he'd be there, and then when they started the communion thing, he would just get up and walk out. And he was so well known for this that one of his pastors, the Reverend Abercrombie, confronted him on the issue from the pulpit and actually preached a sermon one Sunday uh, talking about those in leadership and how they had a responsibility to set a good example, you know, as Christians. And that, that to turn their back on the Lord's Supper was setting a bad example. And Washington's response to it, he acknowledged that the sermon was being preached to him, uh, and he acknowledged that later on, um, but his response to it was just to stop showing up on Communion Sunday, that he just mm. wouldn't go to mm. church. So was he just moral enough to realize it would be blatant hypocrisy to partake as an adherent in something he didn't truly believe? Yes, I, I believe that's right. I believe that that you know, Washington was a, a faithful Freemason, and he never had any problem confessing his Masonic views. Um, but his... In masonry, according to Masonic philosophy, you know, Jesus is, is not, I mean, the communion service is the acknowledgement, you know, because the Bible says as often as we partake of the mm-hmm. bread and the cup, we do show the Lord's death till he comes again. Well, and it would be like yeah. adult baptism, right? I mean, you're formally showing to people around you that you officially buy in. You're not just sitting and listening to somebody talk. You are participating in doing something to say you buy into all of this as part of the the family of faith. Well, you could apply that, I think, to a lot of different things that go on in a in a church. Um, but I think communion is specifically whether you're Catholic or Protestant. Even though I don't agree with Catholic communion at all, um, 
It's the acknowledgement that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And you're acknowledging that. And you're as often as you do, you're showing the Lord's death. You are acknowledging, yes, he died for my sins on the cross. Um, and I acknowledge that he died for my sins. He is the Son of God. Um, and and that, to me, is, you know, uh, because Jesus says things like, you know, except you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Okay? Mm-hmm. Things like this. Uh, and so it's there's more going on to the symbolism of communion, uh, and especially at that time. See, today we're I think mm-hmm. there's more of a relaxed yeah, view I... of of communion in churches, but at that time in in the revolutionary era, this was a very serious business, mm-hmm. and uh, I think it's very peculiar. I think the collective evidence to me is that Washington just could not bring himself to be a part of something that he really didn't believe in. Well, well now, something I noticed in your documentary, it it seemed like when he talked about Christianity, his quotations, he almost spoke in third person, like he distinguished himself separately from the, quote, Christians. Isn't that very clear in the way he would phrase it? Yeah, there's a quote from uh, him in a letter to the Marquis de Lafayette. And both he and Lafayette were Freemasons. And he says to Lafayette in this letter, he says, he says, you know, I indulge the Christians. Or I indulge the professors of Christianity in the church. You know, that way of, uh, that way to heaven, that road to heaven, which to them shall seem the easiest plainest and least likely to exception. And what he meant by that was the view talked about by most all of the founders that in Christianity, you just believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you're saved. And this is what Washington, I believe, meant when he says this is the the easiest and plainest, least likely to exception road to heaven. Whereas Washington's view was deeds, not words. And as a Mason, he would believe that you need to earn God's favor through your good works. Uh, and so I, I, I believe, even though Washington was very guarded about, you know, what he would come out and say fully, uh, I believe, I, you know, in reading his letters and the collective evidence and so on, I think that he saw himself as an outsider to Christianity. And, and he's really... I think he's like letting his hair down to the Marquis de Lafayette and saying, well, you know, Lafayette, I indulge the professors of Christianity by going to church and mm-hmm. this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like from one Mason to another, mm-hmm. um, because in Masonry, they don't believe, you know, that, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life necessarily. They believe he's one way among many ways. We're back at Future Quake with Dr. Future. And Tom... Mount Shasta, I like the drink. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, we were arguing off air whether Shasta was named after the mountain or the the soft yeah. drinks, yeah. which I'm old enough to have had some. I, they I still have know, a I ton of them. Do they really have Shasta? Now? Okay, great. I don't think that's what uh, Chris Pinto was referring to. No. But there were some really unique revelations in here, including about uh, John Adams mm-hmm. uh, in the East. You were referring yeah, to his East. Eastern yeah. religion. Yeah. You don't hear much of that amongst Christians talking about Pretty that. Pretty much zero. They're all like, oh, the America's a Christian nation. Our founding yeah. fathers are Christians, and we love Jesus. 
Jesus. Uh. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Jesus USA. Yeah. Okay, Barbara, would you tell our listeners how to contact us at Future Quake? Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the shows, topics, or guests, or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. We gotta go. All right, we're way over. Yeah, come back tomorrow for our third segment. Until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Bye. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. Quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quick Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I'm Tom. Uh, no middle name this day. Bionic. Oh, boy. Must be something special. Uh, something is special is our guest this week, which is Chris Pinto, the producer of the brand new documentary, The Hidden Faith of the Founding Fathers. We're talking this week about exposing the idolatrous myth of the faith of the Founding Fathers. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's got tons of really important ground-shaking information, some of which he talked about back with us in April and a bunch of new stuff in this documentary. And we're going to get into some of that in this next segment. Roll the tanks. So here's uh, Chris Pinto, and we'll be back to wrap it up here at Future Quake. However, though, Washington has an interesting connection uh, to, of all things, Catholicism. Something that you've really uncovered. I guess this is something that was mostly known in very small circles. But what did you uncover about very late in his life, his connection to Catholicism. Well, it is it is given out in the Catholic Church by you know Catholic sources, publications, and so on, that George Washington was baptized by a Jesuit priest just a few hours before his death, and uh, that a Jesuit named Father Leonard Neal, who was uh, at one point the uh, the president of Georgetown University, um was, you know, summoned just a few hours before Washington died and baptized Washington into the Catholic Church. And the story is said to have been handed down by Washington slaves who witnessed this. And there's even a quote that talks about how, you know, in the slaves' quarters there was weeping and wailing as they said that, you know, Master Washington had been seduced by the scarlet woman of Rome you know, that they'd been taught to fear and hate and so on. And so uh, and so it's handed down by the, the slaves, according to, and, and I cite the sources, give you the quotes, but also the the uh, Maryland province Jesuit fathers, the, the Jesuits, handed this tradition down. Uh, so much so that at uh, Notre Dame University, Washington Hall, that's there at Notre Dame, was supposedly named, according to their own resources, because the founder of Notre Dame believed in this account that Washington was baptized. And you've got modern Catholic publications that state this openly, uh, that he was baptized by a Jesuit. And then what I show in the film is all of the connections between Washington and the Jesuit order. And there's quite a few of them. Uh, he, He specifically sent you know, Archbishop John Carroll, who was a Jesuit priest and the founder of Georgetown University, uh, 
uh, sends him on a, a trip with Benjamin Franklin uh, to Canada to go and represent the colonies in, in Canada, uh, their interests and so on. So he worked directly with uh, Jesuit priests. Um, and so there there is evidence of it. Now, the official story of Washington's death does not include any mention of, you know, uh, a last-minute baptism or anything like that. But it makes all the sense in the world that they would withhold that information because at this time, America was still staunchly Protestant. Uh, prior to the Revolution, Roman Catholics could not vote or have or hold political office because of the laws of England uh, that forbade Catholics from being involved in the political process. But uh, so there, there's a lot of there's a lot of reasons why nobody would have entered this into the the official record, mm-hmm. and it, it's just very interesting that you find you know quotes from Washington slaves and then the the, the Catholics and then the Jesuit priests claiming that this is true. Well, I don't know. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, uh, it's strange that he kept such a, such a distance from getting fully immersed in some of the details of, of practice, I mean, even in the Lord's Supper and things like that, that at the end of his life he would suddenly do it. If it were true, the only thing I can think is that since the Jesuits were known to be undercover in most of their activities is that he could afford to keep somewhat of an arm's length distance from them if he was sympathetic to their belief. But when it came to his deathbed, since they believe in, you know, requirement for last rites and things like that, that it was time to take the gloves off for his own mortal soul if he did really buy into their worldview. Is that well, possible? Well, now, now what, what he rejected, now remember, he rejected the Protestant communion. Mm-hmm. And I think there may be, and I, you know, I'm still investigating this, but sure. the Jesuits at during this era used to make converts from Protestantism to Catholicism. They would have a series of confessions that they would make, and one of the confessions that they were supposed to make was a denunciation of the Protestant communion, hmm. that to partake of the Catholic communion was good and blessed, but to partake of the Protestant communion, okay, of that bread mm-hmm. and that cup yeah. was accursed, that that was a cursed cup. And you were made to say, and we curse ourselves, and we pronounce ourselves to be cursed, that we per- ever partook of that accursed cup, which we ought not to have tasted. It's an interesting, okay. it's an interesting thought, and, and I hope maybe you can find some more information on that to see. Because if he did have connection to the Jesuits and, and what you've uncovered and others about their role in history behind the scenes with these things, that would that would really be fascinating. Um, speaking of other um, clergymen of that era, uh, you spent a good bit of time talking about what the preachers, what the clergymen of that era, the era of the time of the Founding Fathers, and even in the early 1800s, uh, and how they regarded the testimonies of faith of the Founding Fathers. Evidently, this was a this was a big issue for them. And unlike the rose-colored glasses that we wear today, the clergymen of that era evidently had a lot of heartburn with the religious beliefs of the founding fathers in general. Did they not? Don't you uncover these documents in your documentary showing that uh, 
they they really were very wary of the founding fathers. Yeah, I mean the 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 revolutionaries. I, there's there are quotes from a number of leading pastors and ministers of that time, like the congressional chaplain, Dr. Ashbel Green, who was uh, he served as the congressional chaplain for eight years while George Washington was president, uh, and he he says that generally, the the clergy believed that the revolutionaries were infidels, that these guys were not Christians. Um, when he read uh, Thomas Jefferson's papers, when Jefferson's letters were published, uh, he said that Jefferson would be held in abhorrence by all American Christians to the end of time because of his hatred of Christianity. Uh, the, the clergy who lived through the revolutionary era generally held a very different view of the founders, and they, they did not believe that most of these men were Christians at all. And then you find pastors just after the revolution, like the Reverend Bird Wilson. Uh, he spent years of his life investigating what the true faith of the founding fathers was. You know, men like Washington mm-hmm. and others, and preached sermons on it, and was warning, you know, Christians of, of that era that a, that a vast majority of all the men who were serving in the American government at that time were not men making a public profession of Christianity. And so it was, uh, that, that to me was one of the more surprising details, was that, you know, we're so often taught, I mean, I've even heard some teachers say, well, you know, the, the revisionists have changed history. Nobody ever questioned the faith of the founding fathers mm-hmm. in their lifetime. Uh, but that's provably false. Mm-hmm. Their their faith was most definitely questioned. Uh, even Washington. I mean, the whole communion issue with Washington uh, led to so many other inquiries, and people were constantly writing to his pastors and asking them questions because they doubted. You know, they wanted they really wanted to believe Washington was a Christian, and they were very concerned about things like that he wouldn't partake of communion that he, he would not kneel in church. We see all of these paintings mm-hmm. of Washington kneeling in prayer and this kind of thing. But according to his pastor that knew him for over 25 years, he says, I never saw him kneel in church. Okay, other people would kneel. Right. Washington would not kneel. Um, yeah, isn't that interesting? It seems like the, the clergymen of that era were not as easily fooled as those today. Hmm. That, that they held a more fixed standard and didn't let things drop like that, where discernment has almost seemed to go out the window from somewhat from our clergy today. It, it would be like uh, uh, it would be like if you and I could get into a time machine and go 200 years in the future, and we saw teachers trying to convince us that Barack Obama and Nancy Pelosi were Christians. You know, and we had we saw images of Obama on his knees praying, you know, and you know, with his hand on his heart saying the Pledge of Allegiance. And we're like, wait a minute, Obama refused to put his hand on his heart, you know. And and we we live during this era, and we know that whatever these people are telling us, Christians in our generation generally we don't view Obama and Pelosi as Christians. I mean, that's just not the perception of most Christians in churches. Um, we, you know, most Christians uh, in our society today hold a very different view of them, and that's what I was trying to show the audience that that Christians, even during the Revolutionary Era, 
just did not hold that view mm-hmm. of the founding fathers. Well, it reminded and, me a little bit of a story that uh, Dr. Stan Monteith has told, where he and a bunch of other prominent uh, theologians, clergymen here in America, uh, religious leaders, were told to meet with George Bush, where he had turned over a new leaf, and now he was an active Christian right on the advent of his of his campaign for president. And they wanted to sort of show him off to show these religious leaders that he really was truly a Christian. And then they could go out and, you know, try to promote him on their radio and things like that. And I remember Dr. Stan saying that I think he and one other clergyman could see right through it and see that it that it was phony. You know, and the rest of them bought in just completely with it because it was what they wanted to hear. And then we had some guy like Russ Baker on when he was on our show talking about, you know, interviewing a political operative, a main one for the Bush family at the time, who had just written a letter to him saying that you had better have some kind of conversion experience if you think you're going to get anywhere, you know, in your presidential uh, aspirations. You know, and then the story went out that he had to walk on the beach with... uh, with uh, Billy, Graham. Uh, Billy Graham, who doesn't yeah. remember it, yeah. who doesn't remember this happened. I mean, it just seems like the same kind of thing, except the theologians of of that era, you know, weren't as fooled as easily, or at least some of them. Well, there is certainly because you can find quotes from some clergymen, okay, where where there, and David Barton's really good about presenting these kind of mm-hmm. quotes, where you have some clergymen who are talking about. Washington, and they they say things that, you know, they'll say, oh, I remember that his his noble knee, you know, bending and his noble brow and Washington, you know, and they're talking about him like they don't really know the guy, you know, they they just have this sort of, it's almost like he's a movie star and they're one of his groupies. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas what I try to do is to show. You know, the pastors who knew Washington for years, who knew him for decades, and had him in church every Sunday, and, and had dinner and lunch with him and so on, who, who knew him at a personal level and had engaged him in conversations, not just on one or two occasions, but over, you know, a period of many, mm-hmm. many years. Uh, and I think that testimony, the witness from those men, is much more valid mm-hmm. than a lot of the extraneous comments that you find from uh, from other ministers from that time. Mm-hmm. Um, I know we need to keep things moving because we still have a lot of material to cover here. So I, I'm going to have to be succinct as well. And um, Chris, if you can as well too on this, there's an Article 12 in the Treaty of Tripoli that you mentioned. Um, Article 11. Or Article, yeah, Article 11. I'm sorry, and it has an interesting. Uh, thought on how the founding fathers viewed us as far as being a Christian nation. This was a treaty with a a Muslim group, I guess it was the Barbary Pirates, I guess, to try to come to some kind of agreement with them, with the Mohammedans at this time. Can you tell us what what is it that's so important about Article uh, Article 11, and also where did it come from? Uh, Who who originated it, and, and how did it come to be official? Well, the, 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 this is one of the, the shockers that I uncovered when I was doing the research. Um, uh, the Treaty of Tripoli, you know, famously says uh, that the the government of the United States is not in any sense founded upon the Christian religion, and that quote is associated with John Adams, who was the second president. He was president at the time, and who ratified that treaty. And there's some debate about, you know, the drafting of it and so on, how it was drafted. 
But according to Moncure D. Conway, who is a 19th century American historian, he says in his you know, book on this issue that Article 11 was actually drafted by George Washington. That George Washington himself was the one who said that the government of the United States is not founded on the Christian religion. And it, it, the treaty was actually written during Washington's administration and then it was handed off to the Adams administration, who comes in afterward, and John Adams is the one who actually officially signs off on it. Uh, but that, to me, was, was, uh, was a real shocker. But it fits in with everything else that Washington mm-hmm. you know, says and the things that he believed, at least according to his writings. Um, he held a very Masonic view of the world. That comes out. You know, he... He used the the term the great architect of the universe for God. Uh, That was his view of God. And so uh, uh, he would have been against the idea of imposing Christianity exclusively, you know, as opposed to other religions as well. And he even says his idea of uh, civil and religious liberty was for, you know, Christianity, Islam, Judaism, and any other religion to to have an equal place in America. Mm-hmm. Now, was this statement about the basically the America of the U.S. Constitution and founding documents that it was not a Christian nation? Is that one of the most honest statements in the founding documents, as far as just really being an acknowledgement of what their thinking was when they drafted it? Of course, I think it's you know you, you'll get guys uh, that will spin doctor the Treaty of Tripoli, but if you you know David Barton has his book original intent you know what was the original intent of the founders it's very clear it doesn't get any clearer than the treaty of tripoli their original intent was that america not be founded on the christian religion or at least the the government of the united states uh that was their original intent um and it's uh you know it's it's heartbreaking i think for a lot of uh patriot christians out there uh but that's that's that that I think is the clearest expression, and everything that they put in their letters, which I show in this documentary, I think supports that statement. You know, you know, some of the late breaking information that you put in the final third of your documentary uh, responds to a, a figure who's become at the forefront in the public and the media right now, is sort of being the right hand man of Glenn Beck uh, in particular, and now is is probably one of the most influential uh, Christian leaders in America right now, and that's David Barton of the Wall Builders Organization, who really sort of provides Glenn Beck his religious uh, Christian underpinning for his philosophy and beliefs and really promotes this idea about what devout, pure Christians the Founding Fathers were, um, again, to further some kind of agenda they have right now. And... He uses a lot of quotations that are taken about how wonderful Christians these gentlemen were, uh, counter to the assertion that you make in your documentary. And you use a, a, a technique, a little device, to try to get people to understand how he can do that and what has happened. Uh, can you explain how one, you, you alluded to this about what people thought about Barack Obama and uh, Nancy Pelosi, but, but don't you use actually some statements of theirs that someone taken out of context so future generations could look at it and completely have a misimpression just off of their writing? 
Oh, quotes. sure. In fact, in fact, I show, uh, you know, two, I show, uh, written quotes from Barack Obama and Nancy Pelosi because they're, those two people in America right now are, you know, the, they're probably the, the poster children for, you know, left-wing liberalism standing against everything that the right-wing conservative Christians stand for. You know, they're mm-hmm. the antithesis of, you know, conservative Christianity in America. And yet you have very clear, if you just take their words as they have spoken them and you put them on paper, they both, Obama and Pelosi, make very clear confessions of faith in in Jesus Christ and in the Christian religion, it, there's no way around it. At least the words coming out of their mouth. Uh, and uh, I show in the film, I show these quotes, and then I show the video clips of Obama and then Pelosi uh, making these confessions of faith. And I say, you know, you know, if you were to go 200 years in the future, and all you saw was a picture and this quote out on a piece of paper. You could easily be led to believe that these people were Christians who were trying to promote Christian values in America. Uh, and if you didn't know anything else about their lives or the fact that they stood for things like gay marriage and partial birth abortion and abortion in general and all this other stuff that's, uh, you know, deemed anti-Christian and anti-American by, you know, Christians in our generation. Uh, if you didn't know all that stuff, you could easily be deceived about who those people you know, were in their lifetime. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I show those as an example of what David Barton does with the Founding Fathers. He finds individual quotes from these guys, detaches them from the full context of who those men were and what they fully believed in their lifetime and how they were perceived by other Christians. He detaches that and he makes it look like these guys were Christians somehow or other. Uh, when in fact most of them, by biblical definition, were antichrists. They were, you know, mm. dead set against the gospel. Uh, and and while they wanted to do great things with America, they did not want to establish this country as a Christian nation, not at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I, I I hope that the the viewers of your documentary. If they still hold on and cling to skepticism about your points up to that point in the documentary uh, and still want to believe uh, in what they want to believe about the Christian faith of these founding fathers, that when they see that example you give, hopefully the light bulb will come on in their head and they'll realize, ah, this is another case where we could have been had. Because I think it's happened numerous times, and I speak for myself, uh, and it's painful uh, I know just in the last few years, I've found so many areas where I feel like I've been had, and I've bought into something that really didn't hold water on uh, the really the fundamentals of what the Bible teaches. Uh, my culture sort of got in the way of what the of what the Bible had to say, and, and I think that's a really effective tool used for that purpose. Praise the Lord. Praise um, the Lord. Speaking of David Barton. Um, you, you, you talked about some of his techniques like this to deceive people about the, the, the founding fathers and things like that. Are there any other ones that he has said, examples, that you that you can show are just patently false? Just give us a few examples. Oh, sure. Some of the I most mean, egregious. Uh, uh, probably the most egregious is uh, his quote that he used partly on the Glenn Beck program and that he uses in churches. 
Uh, and it's a quote from John Adams about the Holy Ghost. And it's where John Adams says in one of his letters, he says there, uh, there can, you know, there, there can be no government without the Holy Ghost. There can be no marriage without it. There can be no this and no that. And so he's going on and on about the Holy Ghost and how you just can't have any authority. There is no authority without the Holy Ghost. And he says all without it is, uh, you know, perdition and in orthodox terms, damnation. And the way uh, Barton presents the quote, he makes it sound like that Adams is speaking favorably about the Holy Ghost. Now, the problem is, is that as a Unitarian, Adams did not even believe the Holy Ghost existed. He didn't believe there even was such a thing as the Holy Ghost. And he makes that very clear in his other letters. Uh, and if you read the rest of that quote, he's, he's really mocking what Christians believe. He's making mm-hmm. fun of the Christian belief in the Holy Ghost. And he's saying, oh, there can be no authority without this Holy Ghost. All without it is damnation. And then he says, of course, all of this is artifice and cunning. But these poor dupes of humanity believe it. And they'll lay down their lives and go to the, you know, go to the axe or the stake and so on. Uh, all because they believe in this Holy Ghost. And so he's making fun of what Christians believe. Mm-hmm. But, but David Barton takes that quote and many others out of the full context, okay? And he gives Christians the impression that, wow, you know, John Adams, uh, he, he really believed that the authority of the Holy Ghost ought to rule world government. You yeah. know, and, and it's, it's, again, it's the exact opposite of the truth. It's the antithesis of what is true about Adams. Uh, another one, he, he quotes Thomas Jefferson, where Jefferson says, I am a real Christian. Okay? And what Jefferson is saying in that quote, Jefferson is saying, I am a real Christian because he believes that Jesus was just an ordinary man. Mm-hmm. And that he, he wasn't the Son of God, and he didn't die on the cross for our sins, and God didn't raise him from the dead or whatever. And that if you believe all of that stuff, if you believe in the virgin birth and and the resurrection and so on, well, you're not a real Christian. You're a dupe. You know, you're believing lies and, and mythology and so on. You're believing falsehood and stupidity, to use Jefferson's words. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're not a real Christian because you don't even know what Christianity is. I am a real Christian, Jefferson saying, because I don't believe all of that. I am a real Christian because I don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That's what he's saying. Mm-hmm. And so he's he's really, again, like so many of them did, he's mocking the, the real faith of Christians, of believers. He's mocking the gospel. We're back at Future Quake with Dr. Future. And Tom, techniques to deceive people are not my bag, bionic. I'm glad they aren't. I think I'd put you way low on my list of of good deceivers. Yeah. Acceptable deceivers. I look at the ceiling when I try and tell a lie. Yeah, I don't like you. Kicking around. Even when it harms you, you tell the truth. Yeah, I know. It's bad. Um, I think it's interesting to dive straight into what David Barton has been saying. I think Uh, it's long overdue. This is my favorite part of the interview, really. 
maybe this is something we need to take a clip off and put on YouTube or yeah, one of our listeners need to or yeah. something like that, mm-hmm. just to see if we get some response mm-hmm. from some folks because we'd That'd like to cool. know. Let us know what you want to think about it as well, too. Uh, and you can do that. Merv can tell you how to contact us here at FutureQuake. FutureQuake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay, we've got to go. Let's hit it. We've got one more segment where we start looking at the future and what this is all about. Mm-hmm. Come back tomorrow for that. Until then, we hope your future's always bright. Have a good day. Ciao. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And Tom, Treaty of Tripoli, Article 11, something I needed to know about, Bionic. Well, we hope you joined us in the last few days mm-hmm. because this is our last segment with Chris Pinto, the producer of the documentary The Hidden Faith of the Founding Fathers, talking about exposing the idolatrous myth of the faith of the Founding Fathers. Mm-hmm. Our last segment right now, and then we'll be back to wrap it up here at Future Quake. Well, let, let, me, let me ask you um, about, about why. Your opinion, and you can just only give your opinion on this. What do you think are Barton's motives and agendas in facilitating this deception? Good question. I personally believe it, and I, you know, the the documentary is three hours long. I could have gone on for another hour on this whole thing. I personally believe that 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 even as the Dark Ages was, you know, Rome's so-called Christian governance of the world, especially in Europe. Uh, I think that the end-time dark ages, the kingdom of Antichrist, is going to be a counterfeit quasi-Christian system. That's what I believe. Mm -hmm. I believe that, you know, that the Antichrist is not just going to rule over a nebulous world system. I believe there's going to be a real strong Christian element to it. And uh, I believe that's where Barton is headed with all of this stuff, because he doesn't just say, I think the founders were Christians. He uses that information to springboard and then to energize believers and to get them involved in political process and voting and, and, you know, getting behind political candidates like George W. Bush there's a real agenda to what he's doing. Uh, this makes me really scared to think about the setting up of a theocracy. If a theocracy could could facilitate somebody like him or the Antichrist to be able to use it then against us. Especially when it's when everything he's saying, or most of it, is based on lies. You see, that's the thing. It, it, it's just based on lies. It, when it, you know, his, his ministry is called Wall Builders... And it's based on the idea of Nehemiah, who went to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. But if you read Ezekiel, God talks about, you know, how one builded a wall and another came along and, you know, mm-hmm. uh, covered it with untempered mortar, with whitewash. Uh, 
and God says that he's going to break down the foundations of that wall, and it will not stand. And that's what I believe Barton is doing. He's whitewashing the truth. Uh, he's covering up the truth about the founding fathers. The founders were not. What he's doing is he is helping to turn these messengers of Satan into angels of light. That's what he does. Well, it sounds like what he's doing then is one of the biggest threats we have to America and to the church in America right now. I think it's the biggest threat to the church in America because it's destroying the true gospel. The true gospel is not that as long as you have faith in something that you're justified in the sight of God, which is where all of this goes, because that's what the founders believed. And that's what Glenn Beck believes. Glenn, I've seen Glenn Beck on like the O'Reilly program saying things like, oh, you know, whether you go into your church or your synagogue or your your mosque or, or wherever, just go get into your house of worship, wherever it is, and we just need to be a people of faith. We need to get back to faith. And it, again, it doesn't matter what faith mm-hmm. it is. You know, the, the, ancient, the Romans were a people of faith. The Greeks right. were, right. you know, they had faith. The Egyptians, they all had faith. You know, uh, they, they were all godly people. Right. They had lots of gods. Uh, but they weren't justified by the one true God because they were worshiping idols. Now, now he's yeah. a very educated man. Or, well, I won't say he, he was like a high school teacher or something. But, but David Barton is not just ignorant of what he's doing, is he not? I mean... Must he know well and good what he's doing? There's no real excuse we can make for him that he's just totally blind to what's happening. Well, where you know, I would give the average, like you know, the average pastor, teacher, the average Christian that I encounter, I give them a break on this kind of stuff because most people haven't read the letters and the writings of the founders. David Barton claims that he has read more of the founders' writings than anybody else. You know, and he's got all these original source documents. How he could read the letters of these men and not discover their anti-Christian, you know, venom, uh, you know, it's just, it's beyond comprehension. You know, how he could overlook, for example, that John Adams did not believe in the Holy Ghost at all, you know, as a Unitarian. It's just, you, 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 you go... He would have to have an IQ of like negative five to just overlook mm-hmm. these kind of things. I, I assume uh, this has been extremely lucrative to his ministry, though, right? Because, I mean, he's speaking, he's high demand, all these churches, uh, his ministry's grown huge since his association with Glenn Beck. I'm oh, assuming yeah. he, he, he's been able to benefit. I don't know what's going in his pocket, but I'm just saying his ministry is just, it must have benefited wonderfully uh, monetarily. From sort well, of riding this bandwagon. From what I understand, yeah. Especially his, uh, oh, his uh, American Heritage series, you know, that talks about America's godly heritage and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, 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 that has sold over 100,000 copies and, and whatnot. Um, so, yeah, it's been, it's been profitable for him. Now, now uh, one, thing I, one thing I see him associated with is speaking at a lot of dominionist groups. Uh, you know, the dominionists that believe that they're supposed to set up a theocracy in America, and once they do that and use the state to force everybody to do God's law, then Jesus will come back once they've won over the world. I see him, you know, supporting a lot of their activity. Does this propaganda serve the purposes of the dominionist movement, in your view? And does it have parallels to, 
in his role as far as to the propaganda minister Joseph Goebbels back in Germany who devised this false religious history of the ancient Germanic people uh, along, you know, he worked with Himmler as well on developing this to serve their tyrannical political interest. Uh, you know, they provided the prehistory to give the pretext to Hitler that, that right. this, this was an extension of a religious belief that goes way back in the history of our peoples. Uh, is there a parallel that we see forming right now? I personally believe there is. I mean, what, what he's doing is very much propaganda. It's not real history. Um, and what he's, what he's doing is, is provably false. You know, you can prove that the things that he's saying are just wrong. Uh, but, uh, but, but yeah, I think he does have a political agenda. I think it totally feeds into dominionism. And, you know, what the dominionists are saying about taking over the world for Jesus. Uh, and there are those who believe that, uh, like there's a book that was written years ago called Stone Kingdom, if I remember correctly. And there are those who believe that, like in Daniel chapter 2, when it talks about the four world empires and then the stone that was cut without hands, that's a picture of Christ, and it smashes the feet of the statue in Daniel chapter 2, and then the stone becomes a great mountain and fills the whole earth, we believe then sets up the millennial kingdom on earth, you know, after Armageddon. There are others who believe that the stone kingdom is America, that America was the stone cut without hands, the Christian kingdom that is now supposed to spread and take over the whole world, okay, for Christ. That's like that bumper sticker you saw, Tom, wasn't it? What was it? Jesus. Yeah, yep. Jesus USA. Yeah, it was all one word. It was J E S U S A. And uh, it said underneath the subscript was my country, my faith. Yeah. So which is a that's a that's pretty blasphemous in my from my perspective. I don't know if you knew that, Chris, that the USA and Jesus were so inextricably linked. <laughs> yeah. Well, US is of, in Jesus. I mean, well, you know, should have known. a handgun in that fifth gospel. Sh- should have known, and he know. was incomplete until America came came about in the last 250 years. Yeah. yeah. He did this. Uh, um, at the end of your documentary, you say something that's going to be quite provocative to a lot of people, and uh, I'm concerned that maybe some people may not listen carefully like I did in the first time and take something in the wrong way and I wanted you to comment on this um, at the end you state that there is a problem with declaring a principle of freedom of religion and then calling it a God-given right as the founding documents imply and in fact I had to go back and re-listen to it a second time to, to see how you phrased it can you explain further whether you have a problem with religious tolerance in general in our country for people that have different ways of, of practicing their faith, or just implying that it's God's express will, while also portraying America as a Christian country at the same time. Can, can you clarify where you stand on that? Well, I think politically, I think everybody, we all appreciate the idea of religious tolerance in terms of you know, being allowed to practice our religion. I think the uh, uh, where it becomes a problem is, like you said, when it is called a God-given inalienable right, you know, that, that we've, that mankind has been endowed by his creator with the right to believe about God whatever he wants 
mm-hmm. then for that, the interpretation of that to mean that you can worship Buddha or Krishna or Muhammad or Baal or Satan or whatever, that God has given you the right to do that, supposedly. Now, it's very, Whereas, that's very close to saying all paths lead to God, isn't it? Oh, by, of course. By giving that's endorsement, exactly. yeah. One could easily make that next step. Right. And whereas that's not at all the teaching of the Scripture, uh, and and the point that I make in the film is, you know, when the Apostle Paul stood on Mars Hill in Athens, and they had all their gods and goddesses there, you know, he points to them, and and he, he tells them that they're superstitious, and that they have a misunderstanding about who God is. And he says, the times of this ignorance, uh, God winked at, but now he commands that all men everywhere repent because he's appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he's ordained and has given assurance unto all men in that he has raised him from the dead, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, John, uh, in, uh, in his letter, First John, talks about how that we are commanded, this is a commandment from God, that we believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, that it's a commandment, and that God is commanding all men everywhere to repent of the other gods and to put faith in the Son of God uh, and the only true God who sent his Son into the world to die for our sins. Uh, the doctrine of religious freedom, as it said, and calling it a God-given right, right. that's the betrayal. And sure. for the church to take that up and for the church to support that idea is a betrayal of the gospel. That's the point that I was making there at the okay. end of the film. Well, let me, let, let me see if I... This is what I take from this, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I just want to take you how, how, how I understand it, phrase it, particularly from the data, this invaluable information that you provided in your documentary. Um, I, I take it to mean that it is one thing to say the state... The state should not have the right to dictate your conscience and how you um, worship God. The, the state doesn't have a right to do that. It's between you and God and how you worship him. But at the same time, if you say the state is some kind of sacred arm of God, that it's synonymous with the church, but then at the same time you say you can believe whatever you want, then that becomes blasphemy. That is profane. If you take a secular state and make it pseudo-sacred, uh, and at the same time hold these other kind of things where you believe anything you want, um, th- that that combination is what really crosses the line. Am I, am I understanding that correctly? Um, you know, the the, po- the political side of this whole thing is uh, is still something that I am uh, you know hashing out the yeah. whole issue of church and state. Well, me, is, me too. We we we, we try yeah. to thrash this out every week, and we're still working on it. Yeah, I got all the answers. <laughs> I mean, obviously, I don't think that you can legislate somebody's belief. Right. You, you know what I mean? I don't right. think you can say you have to believe, and if you don't, then we're going to kill you. I mean, obviously, yeah, right. we just don't find that in the scripture. Because then we'd have um, to go find an inquisitor and all other yeah. kind of stuff, and it gets messy. Right. right. I nominate Doctor Future. Oh, good. <laughs> But I think, you know, the only thing, that, the only way I, I am able to think of it, to make any sense of it, is it'd be just like running your church, you know. You go to a Christian church, the church is, operates on the teachings of the Bible and the gospel. If strangers come in, and let's say they're not believers, 
you know, they say, well, we're not, we, we don't believe this gospel stuff, but we'd like to visit and, you know, just listen. And you let them come and listen. You know what I mean? If, if Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus want to come and listen and go to the luncheon and just kind of interact with people, that's fine. But you would not give them a place in the government of the church. See what I'm saying? You sure. would let them be elders and deacons and so on when they're worshiping Buddha and Krishna and this kind of thing. You wouldn't do that. You wouldn't give them authority. In that's the right. And that's, that's, have, the, that's the best thing, I think. If you can look at the positive of what we have with our government, is that if it works as advertised, it's supposed to provide protections from the church from that happening. Uh, right. But when you push for a theocracy, and there's so many Christians today who are getting on this Barton Beck bandwagon, the Dominionist approach, as we say here, they're, they're tying the rope that they're going to be hung with themselves. Because when you pull the state over into these sacred activities, uh, and then basically, you know, they're, they're going to respond to the, the whole plurality of people out there. They're all voters. We all have an equal vote. It, it invites them to come into our practice of our faith, our religion, and it can be terribly destructive. And as we've discussed, you and I off air many times, and Tom as well, is that this basically is just blatant idolatry. This is setting America up to be a substitute for God and his sacred instruments, and it cannot end well. When America, yeah, when America, um, the Republican Party, Israel, or whatever, you know, was a big thing in the, you know, Christian movement in America, what you name whatever you want, your denomination, that anytime you set something like this with these pseudo sacred terms like this, it's going to end badly, isn't it? I think so, and and I think that you're you know you're touching on things. I would encourage anybody if you want to learn more about the origins of these things. Uh, I would encourage anybody to read some of the, you know, the history and the writings of uh, Jean Jacques Rousseau, who was one of the leading voices during this time, and he talked about setting up a state religion, that having a, a religion that was just kind of the religion of the state, okay. But it, it, it inspired people. People were inspired, you know, to, to want to serve their country and do good deeds and noble and honorable things for their country uh, and so on, but not necessarily have it be Christianity or anything in particular, to keep it kind of vague so everybody could be included. That's what's become, uh, if you will, that's become the American religion. Mm-hmm. The American religion is... You know, the gods of America are really Jefferson and Washington and Ben Franklin. These are, that's why their statues are all over the place in Washington, D.C. They're the gods, if you will. Well, amongst the other demons that they have there, too. Yeah, exactly. You mean uh, Albert Pike? Albert Pike. <laughs> but that's what I think so many of, of the patriot Christians are following. They're not really followers of Jesus Christ. They're not following the teachings of Jesus. They're following the teachings of George Washington. Uh, they would lay down their lives for Washington, I think, many of these people. Uh, and I won't say all, uh, but many of them would much sooner lay down their life for Washington than mm-hmm. for the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that may well be true. They certainly spend a lot more talk, time talking about him than the teachings of the Lord a lot of the time. And, and you know, I, I guess I look, and, I, and I'm, I'm not saying this on your behalf, 
but but I look at these religious protections if they're actually enforced is something that hopefully will protect me and people like me in practicing our faith, although it it will sometimes allow other people who have different views that I'm uncomfortable with that I hopefully can still engage in the public square to try to persuade them about the truth about Jesus Christ. But uh, I, I really fear that when these people are using these techniques, it leads down to this road of where the dominionists go, that they believe that they have to conquer by force, by using the force of the state, eventually the military, to conquer and do what only the Lord Jesus Christ can do and the Holy Spirit can do. And they believe that they're going to conquer the world and then hand over the kingdom to Jesus. After they've done all the hard work, then they will give Jesus the kingdom which has been taken by force. And I see it as really taking Barabbas over Jesus Christ. We have no king but Caesar! Just like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know we're getting here to the end, uh, and I just want to thank you, uh, Brother Chris, for doing a very bold work here. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, frankly, I, I don't know of any other kind of major ministries, Christian ministries, who are even touching this matter at all. You know, I, I, I know those folks at, at Heroscope, uh, a blog out there, are talking about this. And we have to go sometimes to some of these left-wing publications to find out about what the Dominionists are doing because the Christians aren't even watching them. We had Joseph Farah, you know, had a World Nut Daily on our show, say that he didn't worry at all about it, uh, what they were doing. Um, but, you know, you've got uh, uh, Derek Gilbert at uh, PID Radio and a few other folks. But you're one of the few people, probably the highest profile person, uh, Tom Horn I know speaks about it some, uh, that is really taking a firm position, and I sure hope this th- this is able to be in front of a larger number of Christians. And it's really going to require our listeners to get your documentary, one, to support your ministry, and secondly, to become aware of these arguments, this information, and sit down with people in their church and explain this kind of stuff. You know, show them pieces of your documentary, show excerpts and things like this. Uh, to be able to to help them understand because it's such an important work. Do do you have any other suggestions in the last two or three minutes here of our show of what you suggest we need to do? What what are the actions that we need to take um, to to set things right? Well, I think I you know I think educating people is is the key uh, is the key to this whole thing because it's you know the the mainstream churches are are welcoming people like David Barton with open arms. I mean, that's what that's what most Christians in America want to hear. They want to hear that the founders were Christians. That's what they want to teach their kids in homeschool and so on. Uh, that just makes a much nicer story. Uh, the, the fact that these men were deceivers and antichrists, according to the Bible, is not such a nice story. You know, it's a, it's a very disturbing story. It's a disturbing reality. Uh, that these men were inspired by the spirit of Antichrist. But I think it's so important that we, and this is why I make this point in the film, that it's important that we as Christians present a biblical worldview concerning these things. And remember that, you know, Jesus says, if any man hears my words and believes not, I will not judge him. Uh, but the word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him on the last day. Mm-hmm. How are the founders judged by the word of God? Uh, they're not going to be called deists or agnostics or whatever. They would be called antichrists. Because the Bible says, who is antichrist 
but he that denies the Father and the Son. Mm -hmm. uh, that this is a deceiver and an antichrist. And that's what these men were. Uh, now, if you were, you know, if you watch David Barton when he goes into a church, he'll say, oh, well, Jefferson, you know, he's often seen as the least religious of the founders. You know, but mm -hmm. here's what he said about Christ. You know, right. he'll say this or that. Now, if you introduce Jefferson, you say, well, now, Thomas Jefferson was an antichrist, uh, but he did build a church. You know, right. if you said that, it, it, immediately you have a completely different view of Jefferson. Mm -hmm. Why do we want an antichrist building a church? We don't want an antichrist building a church. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, why do we want an antichrist telling us about God? Uh, we don't want an antichrist telling us about God. You know, the Bible says, mm -hmm. blessed is he who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. So, why do we need the counsel of these men? So the you Christians know? who learn this information come to a crossroads, that they have to choose to willingly accept the myth that makes them feel good, or accept the way of the cross and the message of Christ in the Bible. That's Amen. the choice. Ding. That's the choice. Yep. That's the choice. I mean, the Bible says that, you know, that in the latter time, during the last days, uh, that men would not hear sound doctrine, but would turn away their ears from the truth and would be turned unto fables. Mm -hmm. I think this, you know, you called it a myth several times, this idea of America or the United States mm -hmm. being found as a Christian nation, it, it, it's, it's the most deadly fable that we have, I mm -hmm. think, in the church here in America. And it becomes an idol. And I mentioned a few other things, like I mentioned America or Israel or the Republican Party or church. You know, all those things I can say many positively good things about. And I think there is a good and healthy way to acknowledge them in a healthy way. But to do it in a biblical way... You cannot idolize them. You cannot set them above critique and then say that you have no other standard other than the Bible. Right. We have come to the end, uh, and this we appreciate good. you staying with yeah, us man. for an extended discussion. And by closing, could you tell our listeners how they can get a hold of your documentary? Oh, sure. Go to If you go to our website at adullamfilms.com, A-D-U-L-L-A-M-F-I-L-M-S, adullamfilms.com, uh, we're going to have uh, The Hidden Faith of the Founding Fathers posted there on the front page. We're also going to send out uh, a newsletter to everybody uh, to make them aware uh, of the release. Mm -hmm. Or and they could call our toll-free number, which is 888-780-5049. That's 888-780-5049. Okay. And we will put that link uh, where this show is archived uh, under the Past Shows tab at futurequake.com. That link will be there. We highly recommend people get that. I know a lot of our listeners have gotten a lot of your work. Uh, if not, they need to, to load up on all of it because it is a truly independent view seeking to be Bible-believing uh, on these matters, a thing that's woefully needed to be discussed in the Christian community. And uh, I, can they go to wall builders as well and get this? Are they also stocking this? <laughs> 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 yeah, David Barton's got it on special. Okay. Uh, I will say in closing that he has been asked to be on this show, and initially we got an affirmative some time ago. And they say he has so many important places to go, they keep putting it off. 
Um, but listeners out there, if you'd like to hear him respond, we'd love for him to forum to discuss about some of these uh, accusations and issues. Uh, email wall builders or call them and say, you know, we've heard some things very disconcerting about this on this future Quake show. Uh, we'd really like to hear him discuss it. And uh, could we twist your arm if he shows up to uh, be there and def- defend yeah. your uh, your assertions about some of his work? Oh, sure. I would I would be more than happy to uh, to debate the issue. Yeah, so you stand behind it. Uh, thank you, Brother Chris. We look forward to you coming back again really soon. Uh, just keep up your, your work. It's lonely work what you do, but uh, we appreciate it, and we look forward to having you back for, uh, for the next provocative topic you'll have. All right, brothers. Thank you so much, and God bless you guys. God bless. We're back at Future Quake with Dr. Future. Let's mock Voltaire. That's my just whole name. <laughs> okay. Let's, let's mock Voltaire. What do you think about this? Discussion. Incredibly instructive. Good. I, and good. I thought you handled it very well. Well, uh, thank you, you were brother. Very, very good all the way around. Thank you. Well, get the documentary, ladies and gentlemen. Mm-hmm. And if you want to contact us, Merv can tell you how to contact us here at Future Quake. Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. we got to go. Let's go. Come back tomorrow for tomorrow's Tremors. Until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Auf Zane. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I'm Tom A-Team Bionic. A-Team Bionic? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I forget how that went. That's it. Yeah, that one. Are you B.A. Baracus or whatever the guy's name was? I pity the fool who doesn't get my middle name right. Ladies and gentlemen, it's great to be back with you today here on Friday. And you know Friday's different than the rest of the week when we do our interviews. Tom Bionic, what do Fridays signify? It signifies tomorrow's tremors or today's review of the news. You purposely messed up the end of it just to get back to old Tom. Today's review of the future's news. Oh, that's right. Okay, I know. I know. It's an honest mistake. Mm-hmm. Um, boy, it's been a hard week for me. I don't know about you. Uh, it's been an interesting one for sure. So it's been a lot of weird stuff. Yeah. Appreciate everybody's prayers out there. Mm-hmm. Appreciate everybody's emails too. Very, very much encouragement and mm-hmm. and tips on guests and everything else. You all keep sending stories, things like mm-hmm. that. Um, anything you need to announce before we jump in the news on your mind? Um, everybody should really be in prayer about, you know, everything that's going on and, you know, praying for discernment and just really, uh, just be in prayer. I think something big's going to happen here soon. And, really? Yeah. Okay. All um, right. And it's better to do it now under peace rather than under duress mm-hmm. to decide to start sort of praying. Like preemptive prayer, you know. Yeah. Get in the habit of right going to, going into prayer in your prayer closet like seven times a day. You know what's interesting is that I'm sure there's been times when prayers from prayer warriors averted something, mm-hmm. and you'll never know. Mm-hmm. And it's like people thought, well, these people are crazy. They prayed, and nothing happened. Nothing going on. But what could have been mm-hmm. had they not? You know. Exactly. 
you know. Do you have a story for us you'd like to share? Um, did I go first last week? I can't remember. Oh, um, a million years ago. Yeah. All right. Uh, since I have three short ones, I'll go. Okay. Obama argues his assassination program is a quote-unquote state secret. At this point, this is via Salon. Salon, okay. At this point, I didn't believe it was possible, but the Obama administration has just, just reached an all-new low in its abysmal civil liberties record. This is from the guy who said he was going to, like, right the wrongs and, mm-hmm. you know, all that stuff. Uh, in response to the lawsuit filed by Anwar uh, Awal. Awalaki's father asking a court to enjoin the president from assassinating his son, a U.S. citizen, without any due process, the administration late last night, according to the Washington Post, filed a brief asking the court to dismiss the lawsuit without hearing the merits of the claims. That's not surprising. Both the Bush and Obama administrations have repeatedly insisted that their secret conduct is legal, but nonetheless urge courts not to even rule on its legality. It's like, don't worry, mm-hmm. this is legal. Don't, don't look at it. But what's most notable here is that one of the arguments that Obama Department of Justice raises to demand the dismissal of this lawsuit is, quote-unquote, state secrets. In other words, not only does the president have the right to sentence Americans to death with no due process or charges of any kind, but his decisions decisions as to who will be killed and why he wants them dead are, quote-unquote, state secrets, and thus no court may adjudicate their legality. And that's that's it in a nutshell. Basically, they can do whatever they please, including killing people, and nobody can even ask questions. Yeah, state secret. It's a state secret. That's basically a tyranny, right? That's uh, that is by anybody's definition. Yes. What about if, like, you decide to kill everybody of the opposite political party, and then they said, "Well, it's a state secret." So sorry. Sorry. Yeah, state secret. So much for that checks and balances. Yep. Well, we've that's that's gone out the window. I'm so glad we've gotten away from that authoritative tyranny of the Bush administration. I know, I know. You know? It's so funny to hear people, to hear people usually that are you know very very liberal. Mm-hmm. They get all worked up and they start ranting and raving about how bad the Bush administration is. Mm-hmm. Now, now Salon t- tends to be left of center. Yeah, I would say so. They're getting fed up. Yeah, now. they're getting. They're realizing that more people. I think some people on the right got the idea not too long ago, and now people on the left that. You got the ruling class and then the rest of us. Yeah, there's elite two parties that are just the same thing. Slaves. Yeah. Yeah, and they have their good laughs, pretending there's two different parties with two different ideas. Meanwhile, they do as they please once mm-hmm. they get in office. Yep. Tell us what they want to hear. Well, uh, are you ready for something for me? Th- th- this is one that now is actually finally coming over into bits and pieces of the mainstream press, so some of our listeners may know about it. Oh. Uh, you know it's bad when it finally gets over to them. In fact, this is from ABC News from Brian mm-hmm. Ross. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, U.S. soldier describes thrill kill of innocent civilians in Afghanistan. We've mentioned oh, yeah. this a few this times. Is, this, is five people. this is terrible. This is just a little more details from, from direct interviews with some mm-hmm. of the participants. Uh, if people have missed this, I just wanted to share it with them. Uh, this is from ABC News. It says, dressed in a T-shirt and Army shorts, a 22-year-old corporal from Wasilla, Alaska, Ironically, where Sarah Palin's from. Hmm. Sure, no must relationship. Be, must but, be some connection. Yeah. Uh, uh, casually describes on a videotape made by military investigators how his unit's, quote, crazy sergeant randomly chose three unarmed innocent victims to be murdered in Afghanistan. Corporal Jeremy N. Morlock is one of five GIs charged with premeditated murder in a case that includes allegations of widespread drug use the collection of body parts and photos of U.S. soldiers holding the Afghan bodies like hunter trophies. All That's five, scary. Yeah. 
Um, when there's no rules, there's just decadence. Yeah. It's like apocalypse now. You know, you know? Uh, I hate to derail your 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 uh, just derail story, away. But I was I've been reading this book. It's sort of a uh, he meant it as therapy, but it's a it's an account about this uh, special forces op who was a sniper. Mm-hmm. And about he was sent illegally into Honduras. There's one part where there he was. Mm. They sent him to shoot drug dealers and stuff. And uh, halfway through the halfway through his two week mission there, he realized he was kind of acting like a psychopath. Okay. And he said the scariest thing is it didn't disturb me all that much. Just a state sanctioned one. Yeah. 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 Shooting people randomly. Do they have drugs? I don't know. Boom. Mm-hmm. But I done. have a gun. Yep. Yeah. Bye. Okay. Um. It says all five soldiers were part of the 5th Striker Combat Brigade of the 2nd Infantry Division based at Fort Lewis, McCord, Washington. In charging documents released by the Army, the military alleges that the five Staff Sergeant Calvin Gibbs, Specialist Adam Winfield, Specialist Michael Wagnon, uh, Private First Class Andrew Holmes, and Morlock were involved in one or more of three murders that took place between January and May of this year. Okay, this is not like right after 911. This yeah. is recently. Okay, um, it says lawyers and family members of the soldiers say all intend to fight the charges. An Article 32 hearing for Morlock, the military equivalent of a grand jury, is scheduled uh, or later today at Fort Lewis McCord, Washington. On the tape uh, obtained by ABC News, Morlock admits his role in the deaths of three Afghans, but admits the plan was organized by his unit Sergeant Calvin Gibbs, who also was charged with premeditated murder. Now, the video on ABC News, you can actually watch him say this on the video. Mm-hmm. He says um, uh, he he just really doesn't have any problem with blanking, killing these people. Morlock said on tape as he laid out the scenario, he said the sergeant used to make it seem the civilians were killed in action. And so we identify a guy. Gibbs, Gibbs makes a comment like, you know, you guys want to wax this guy or what? Morlock told military investigators during an interview videotaped in May at Kandahar Airfield, Afghanistan. The corporal said Gibbs gave orders to open fire on the civilian. At the same time, Gibbs threw a hand grenade at the victim. He pulled out one of his grenades, an American grenade, you know, popped it, throws it, tells me where to go to whack this guy, kill this guy, kill this guy, Morlock told the investigators. Corporal Jeremy Morlock is one of five GIs charged uh, in a case that includes allegations of widespread drug use, and I think we've covered some of these. Um, he said, Morlock said, Sergeant Gibbs carried a Russian grenade to throw next to the body of the dead Afghan to make it seem like he was r- about to attack the American soldier. So planning a weapon on him. Hmm. Uh, the corporal said he opened fires directed, fearful of not following Gibbs' orders. It's definitely not the right thing to do, Morlock told the investigators. But I mean, when you got a squad leader bringing you into that, that type of real, that mindset, and he believes that you're on board with that, uh, there's definitely no way you wanted him to think otherwise. The investigator asked Morlock, because you felt maybe the next shot might be coming your way? Well, you never know exactly, answered Morlock. I mean, Gibbs talked about how easy it is. People disappear on the battlefield all the time. A lawyer for Gibbs declined to comment. All five charged are in military custody. Morlock's lawyer, Michael Waddington, said his client made his confession at a time when he was taking heavy medication. My client didn't kill anyone, said Waddington. He did not use any bullets or any grenades to kill any of these individuals. In addition to murder, the Army's challenging charging documents alleged rampant drug use in Morlock's unit, as well as the dismemberment of dead Afghan civilians. Corporal Morlock describes how Sergeant Gibbs allegedly collected the fingers of some of his Afghan victims. 
It's his thing now, said Morlock. I don't know, his crazy stuff, war trophies, whatever. Morlock said Gibbs boasted of carrying out similar murders in Iraq, but was never caught, and threatened the men in his unit with harm if they refused to participate or reveal what was happening. If Gibbs knew that I was sitting in front of this camera right now, there's no doubt in my mind that he'd blanking take me out if he had to, Morlock told the Army investigators. Hmm. So, you know, the question is, well, is this just some kind of isolated unit of a crazy person or well, something endemic? I think we've heard enough stories about Blackwater and about these other ones where... Funny you mention their name. It creates a an environment of just total, total abandon. Well, uh, you know, one of the... Probably the main reason I'm reading this book... Uh, I'll, I'll give a little plug to the guy because it's out there. It's called uh, Tip of the Spear mm-hmm. by Bob W. Kennedy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was, uh, you know, uh, a Marine and then kind of segued into special forces and stuff and as a sniper. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he uses those exact same sort of phrases about, you know, uh, getting Honduras, you know, Honduran citizens mm-hmm. out there. And some of them they found out later were guilty. Some of them they don't know. But it was just sort of an indiscriminate, well, there are people on this road and this is our... They were judge, jury, and executioner on the spot. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah, and he makes those he makes those claims about himself that he was, you know, uh, yeah, he was sort of making making up the rules as he went along, mm-hmm. and he called some of these some of these people that he killed as trophies, and you know. you know, some of the things to consider. One is when I look at higher ups, when you've got that big a place like Afghanistan and people spread out in little remote places. I could see it being somewhat easy to not know what some of these guys are doing remotely mm-hmm. when they're out of your eye and what's going on in these very desolate areas, very depressing kind of environment. Mm-hmm. But there's got to be checks and balances put in place to be able to monitor this kind of stuff. If they don't, then they're being derelict, the up, higher-ups, sure. to be able to smoke out people like this, psychological testing or moving people around so... You don't keep a bad situation like this together. One of the things that that's troubled me the most is reading through Deuteronomy and uh, really the the first the first five books there, um, and finding out how much justice and mercy come mm-hmm. up. You know, like I'm in Deuteronomy right now. My yeah. Bible study. Me too. Same me thing. Too. Um, I'll look for you in there. All right. I'm gonna pass them back. <laughs> Do like a high five. Uh-huh. Um, but the the amount of justice and mercy that's talked about there, and then concurrently the curses that come on come on you for justice and mercy. After a certain point, mm-hmm. uh, there's a point where uh, Moses says, "And when you guys get to Mount Ebal, uh, you'll get up there, and the Levites will read this thing, and you'll say, you will do this, you will do this, you will do this, you will do this. And if you don't do this, you'll do this. You'll get this. Mm-hmm. You'll get this. You'll right. get this. You'll get this. And it's interesting to see that the various maladies that I seem to uh, I see on society these days." Uh, translate to that. I just saw that this mm-hmm. afternoon, so I, it's not a well thought out mm-hmm. design, but you know, mercy, justice, that's what you're supposed to do. And if you don't do that, uh, you know, I'll send my, I'll send, right. I'll send delusions that you won't get to pick. You won't, you will yeah. have be confused of mind and, right. you know, and it was just fascinating. To see Which that. is, we've studied the Old Testament even at church. That's a main weapon mm-hmm. of God against his enemies is to throw the enemy camp into confusion. Mm-hmm. And when we become God's enemy, by the way we act, confusion is also going to come in our own camp. Yeah. Uh, you know, when when that happens. You know, it's, fun, it's funny you mention this because we have pontificated and given our opinions about what we think about the right role of Christians in government, things like that. Mm-hmm. And I'm actually trying to go through the entire Bible right now and to make sure that what I believe 
is consistent with Scripture mm-hmm. and amend what I believe to what Scripture says the best I can understand. Mm-hmm. And so I'm trying to document these kind of things as I'm going through the entire Bible. Uh, that and some other topics, too. And one of the things that I've noticed is that in, in, in the Pentateuch, in those five books, God continues to say, you use the same law for the stranger and for the others in your midst, not just the covenant people here. Mm-hmm. They deserve the same rights and privileges and protections that you deserve, the covenant people. Mm. So people want to know the mind of God when we talk about, well, gee, these people from somewhere else, they don't deserve these rights. Mm -hmm. They don't deserve these rights to have a trial or a jury or face their accusers or things like that. certainly not the Pentateuch. God God said that, you know, even the strangers and people outside your circle, they deserve these these same protections. Yeah. Having to have witness come forward to condemn them, those, those kind of things, not take advantage of them. We must be like having the same Bible study or something because that, that sort of thought kind of hit me a couple of weeks ago. You think maybe doing this show has an influence on some of the things we pick up I on in the Bible? I maybe? think there's probably no correlation. Probably no correlation <laughs> whatsoever. <laughs> I know our listeners probably say, you all need to read that Bible a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, especially that Tom Bionic guy. He's out of his mind. Somebody yeah. needs to hit him. With one of those millions of people who, yeah. who listen to your Bible study. Oh, both of them. No. <laughs> Got another story? I do. Uh, it's interesting you mentioned Blackwater and steroids and guns and ammo. Wish we could get them and on. large Love amounts of cocaine and blocks of hashish. Because all, that all comes up in my story. You wouldn't say that they're all connected or, you know, have I'm some sure connection. It's random. Yeah. I'm sure it's just random. Try to get Eric Prince on our show if you can. That'd be an interesting... Call Focus on the Family. Say we'd like to have one of their, one uh, of their members, their yeah. contributors, too. Uh, uh, I, I believe he was on the board of elders, wasn't he? I don't know. I, I've, I've seen reports he was on some board of Focus on the Family. I hate to say for sure. Oh, okay. But, yeah, I have seen some reports. Okay. I don't know. He is a main contributor to Focus on the Family, mm-hmm. Eric Prince, when he's not doing those child prostitution rings and yeah. killing Focus civilians. on the Family with a 9 by 50 scope. Um, so then you get to knock off people in the family. Yeah, you know, yeah. while you're focusing Focus on, on the family. That's right. Yeah, with I get that focus six. scope thing. Yeah. Sorry, a little slow there. That's it's cool. Uh, anyway, this 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 is uh, via the nation, and uh, well, I'll just jump into it here. A Texas businessman who has worked extensively in Iraq claims that Blackwater paid him to purchase steroids and other drugs for its operatives in Baghdad as well as more than 100 AK-47s and massive amounts of ammunition on Baghdad's black market. Howard Lowry, who worked in Iraq from 2003 to 2009, also claims that he personally attended Blackwater parties where company personnel had large amounts of cocaine and blocks of hashish and would run around naked. Uh, this, is actually, this is actually closely uh, follows the allegations that went on about the, uh, the private security at the, mm-hmm. uh, the embassy in Afghanistan. Now, these are the guys that their leader at Blackwater said they were part of a holy war against against these evil uh, enemies of God, the Muslims, uh, I did, right? I did believe Eric Prince did use the word holy war. Because they're representing God himself while they're doing the hashish and running mm-hmm. around naked in the parties. Yeah. yeah. Uh, at some of these parties, Lowry alleges, Blackwater operatives would randomly fire automatic weapons from their balconies into buildings full of Iraqi c- civilians. Uh, Lowry described the event as a frat party gone wild, where drug use was rampant. Lowry said he was told by Blackwater personnel that some of the men using the steroids he purchased were on the security date detail of L. Paul Bremer, uh, the original head of the Coalition Provisional right. Authority. Lowry also claims that Blackwater's owner, Eric Prince, tried to enlist his help to win contracts for Blackwater with the Iraqi government using an offshore security company called Greystone, which Prince owns. 
the purpose, Lowry said, was to conceal Greystone's relationship to Blackwater. So it's just more of the same, mm-hmm. you know. I almost didn't want to bring that, but it's it's odd, you know. Uh, we've talked at length about having mm-hmm. conversations and where you kind of like drop a huge wad of truth on the table with somebody, mm-hmm. and usually the retorts are, well, how do you know that's not faked? And how do you know that's, how do you know what you're saying is it's true? It's something different than what I believe, so therefore it must be fake. Yeah. Yeah. And and uh, both both the nation and Salon and people on the left and right uh, mm-hmm. are, are bring, coming coming. And it's not just left people bringing this up. You no. talk to Chuck Baldwin, yeah. Baptist left, pastor, right, you know? center, right, moon unit, all of it. That stuff doesn't mean anything anymore. It's the people who are getting wind to, to what I consider is more of a biblical view of the powerful elite people who are manipulating all of us and making artificial divisions, mm-hmm. and then the rest of us who have come from originally different political spectrums that are realizing we've been had. That's interesting. That's uh, that's right up the alley of some Bible study stuff that I've been I've been looking at. Well, that's right not a bad there. idea when yeah. it's in line with Bible study stuff. Yeah, I know. If all else fails, our opinions are they can be in line with the Bible. You know, that, that's a nice feather well, in our cap. You, if all else fails, right? Maybe that's at least one tiebreaker we have. Last second, yeah. Tiebreaker in our argument if there it fits go. with the Bible. Uh, here's another one. I've been trying to say ones that are already in the mainstream that are really past quake. You know, mm-hmm. that. Uh, by the way, given that. Uh, I'll challenge our listeners, if they get a chance, email us. Mm-hmm. If you hear any stories in the mainstream Christian press talking about, uh, you know, it's like mass media, uh, radio, t- Christian talk radio, things like this, talking about Blackwater or talking about these guys that were this killing group that I'd read mm-hmm. a few minutes ago, mm-hmm. email me. Uh, email us and let us know how much you're hearing this talked about. M- my, my suspicion is it's little to none. But I, I don't want to speak something untrue. If you hear... Uh, some of the main Christian radio networks and media talking about Blackwater and these kind of things. Mm-hmm. I'd like to give them their due. Yeah. I'd be very curious to see what you all find out there. Again, perhaps we should get Eric Prince on. <laughs> yeah, he's probably a regular listener, I'm assuming. Yeah. Okay, uh, here, here's another story that uh, people have already heard about, but it just gives us an excuse to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, the first scale, The first full-scale cyber attack on a state... Iran is under cyber threat as Obama offers nuclear negotiations. Uh, this is from Debka, an mm-hmm. Israeli site. It says, Iran admitted on Monday, September 27th, that it was under full-scale cyber terror attack. The official Erna News Agency quoted Hamin Alipur, deputy head of Iran's government information technology company, as saying that the Stuxnet computer worm mm, is... I wonder mu- if this is going to come up. Oh, yeah is mutating and wreaking further havoc on computerized industrial equipment. Uh, Stuxnet is no normal worm, he said. The attack is still ongoing, and new versions of this virus are spreading. Revolutionary Guards Deputy Commander Hussein Salami declared his force had all the defensive structures for fighting a long-term war against the biggest and most powerful enemies and was ready to defend the revolution with more advanced weapons than the past. He stressed that defense systems have been designed for uh, all points of the country and a special plan devised for the Bashir nuclear power plant. Debka files military sources report that this indicates that the plant and probably other nuclear facilities too have been infected, although Iranian officials have insisted it is not, only the personal computers of its staff. Mm. The Stuxnet spy worm has been created in line with the West electronic warfare against Iran, said Mamoun Liali, Secretary of Information Technology Council of the Industries Minister. As for the origin of the Stuxnet attack, Hamin Alipur said, the hackers 
uh, who enjoy huge investments from a series of foreign countries or organizations, designed the worm, which has affected at least 30,000 Iranian addresses to exploit five different security vulnerabilities. This confirmed the impressions of Western experts that Stuxnet uh, invaded Iran's supervisory control and data acquisition systems through zero-day access. Alipur added the malware, the first known worm to target large-scale systems and industrial complexes control systems, is also a serious threat to personal computers. Deb Gafal's Iranian intelligence sources report that these statements are preparing the ground for Tehran to go beyond condemning the states or intelligence bodies alleged to have sponsored the cyber attack on Iranian infrastructure and military industries and retaliate against them militarily. Iran is acting in the role of victim of unprovoked full-scale cyber terror aggression. Hmm. So, um, the, if, if you look on the web, and some, you know, our listeners are pretty sophisticated. They've probably been following this from different angles. Most of the sources that I'm reading are saying that it has to be someone like the United States or Israel or combination mm-hmm. because it's the most sophisticated thing they've ever seen and it's a whole new era because evidently it, it attacks, uh, uh, like computer controls of equipment, mm-hmm. which uses a totally different operating system than computers. Mm-hmm. It is something, it's a very special language. It's only used to control things like nuclear power, devices, uh, factories, you know, automated equipment, that kind of thing. And it's a special processor command that somebody just sticks in a, you know, memory stick and, and, and something attached to it, mm-hmm. and it has spread from there. That's interesting. I read an article about that that said specifically, uh, one computer expert said specifically that that worm was designed to attack one target, and that was the Bashir nuclear power plant. Mm-hmm. And that was before it had gotten attacked. That was about mm-hmm. a week ago I read that. Yeah. So it's just this raises a new level, though, I mean, because we've heard little things about Chinese hacking in and this things like this. But somebody read that this is now the the fifth sphere of combat. Mm. Uh, this is like a breakthrough in the dawn of it, because we we have land, sea, air, and space, and now we have cyber sphere attack. Mm. And it's been talked about. Small skirmishes. This is the real deal. And I wonder. I mean, there's two ways to look at this. One could say, well. You know, if you're going to attack these guys, it's better to do it in a nonviolent, bloodless way, to do it in a way that doesn't cause loss of life. Mm-hmm. The other thing you can see is that possibly it's something that's intended to provoke them to do a military attack, mm-hmm. which is ironically what this Israeli website just mentioned. It's like poking with a stick. Because they expect yeah. that it's because they want them to go first. They want it to them to have an overt military attack, and if they can do this to make life miserable, it's almost like a blockade of computers, so to mm, speak. It's interesting. It, it gets to provoke them to take what they can do, which is a, an overt attack. So I wouldn't be surprised if Iran takes a non-conventional uh, response in turn of its own, like kidnapping, uh, you know, some people, civilians, service people, or whatever, something that's non-symmetric in in turn mm. to try to get America, Israel, the West to attack militarily to them. So it's a massive chess game with so much at stake. Mm. But it's definitely a provocative act, what's going on. And the other thing that got me thinking about is that, you know, people always wondered in the Bible where you hear like horses being up on the hillside and Gog Magog and all the chariots and horses. And most people say, well, that's just metaphorical. John didn't understand tanks when he saw it and these other kind of things. And then, and then some people have said, well, it could be, you know, a... a, a uh, a, a nuclear blast in the sky that causes, you know, the wipeout of the electro electro systems, you know, mm-hmm. the EMP. And so we're to sort do of it. back to back to horses. This is another alternative to EMP to create that. 
Mm-hmm. If this stuff spreads and they said it's terrible and how it can spread through anything that is hardware computer controlled, you could wipe out. And now almost everything has a chip in it. Almost everything has something that's sort of computer controlled. So hmm. I don't know. That's, that's right. an interesting thought. Just just an idea. Yeah. Okay. We got a little bit of time. You got something you want to read us? Uh, I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. Of course. <clears throat> do we want to do we want to hear about the? We've uh, got tw- fifteen seconds. Really? Oh. Yeah. Headline, something to think yeah. about and mull over. FBI raids home with five Minneapolis anti-war activists. Okay. They just sort of raided them home because they were against the war. So. Did they find they were plotting something terrible and horrible? Yeah, they said they were supporting activities concerning the material support of act uh, of terrorism. Um, so, but they, they haven't said exactly what or whatever. I mean, recall the recall the St. Paul thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, right several years ago where they took all those mm-hmm. uh, anti-war activists and held them in jail for a week. Mm-hmm. Just released them after the after it was done up there, you know. Just like the FBI COINTELPRO program uh-huh. back in the 60s and 70s. Exactly like it. They just change names, the same kind of thing. They hassle who they want to. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You know, if you can shoot people without having to tell why you shot them, then this stuff's small potatoes. Indeed. Coming to a, I'm sure, mm-hmm. coming to a town near you, you know. Somebody else coming to us is Merv, who can tell you how to contact us at Future Quake. Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests, or suggestions for future show topics or guests, are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. We have to go. All We're right, running a little late. Sorry. Come back next week for a fantastic guest, I promise you. Till then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Bye. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake, quake.